Good morning, Vietnam! I mean, uh, filmmakers. Whoops, sorry. We're not in Vietnam, uh, and I'm not Robin Williams. Um, and it's not morning. We're pu publishing this at 8 o'clock at night. I have no idea what's going on with me. Um, hello, filmmakers. How many have you had? I stopped counting. Yeah, that's fair. Sometimes you just don't want to know That's at, at a uh, point. Good thing I'm not married. Um, anyway, how's it going, filmmakers? Uh, thank you for tuning in to the Late Evening Show. I am your host, Andrew. And I am your second host, Jasper. The least favorite. And how are Every you doing, time. you mother of bitches? I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> I am doing quite well. Um, <laughs> I'm assuming when you clicked on this, knowing that it was eight hours long <laughs> that you knew what you were getting into but gosh we have so much good information so today we are talking to brad rushing and sean piccinino um we go into the depths about their number one netflix film um which also hit number 13 in the world for 2020 overall which is insane um, we go into depths about their film. We go into uh, depths about like gear and and guerrilla filmmaking and um, a lot of inspirational stuff for you guys listening that are uh, new and upcoming. And and even if you don't know where to get started um, and how to get there, there's just there's so much here. So I hope you guys learn a lot from this. We'll just get right into it because at this point we've been going for hours. So please welcome Brad and Sean. Well, uh, I'm Sean Piccinino. I'm a uh, film and television director uh, and writer, and uh, we're here talking about. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm assuming all things movies, films, projects we have. Obviously, we we uh, mm -hmm. had a movie called A California Christmas that came out uh, during Christmas and or the holiday season, and uh, it did really well. So um, uh, uh, we're here to uh, talk about that and uh, maybe some future projects. I don't know. You guys tell me. Yeah, we're happy to talk about anything. So. Um... But yeah, we'll get there. So Brad, tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Brad Rushing. Uh, I'm a cinematographer. Been doing this for a little while now. Uh, my work includes narrative in uh, feature films, television, um, and beyond, as well as uh, commercials and music videos. Uh, had the good fortune of meeting Sean about, gosh, five years ago now on a really fun uh, World War II movie. And since that time, we've ventured into outer space and uh <laughs> you know a small town farm christmas and we've had a lot of fun and worked with some really amazing people along the ways and uh you know we've got some really fun prospects up ahead so um happy to talk to you about uh any and all of that and uh and more that's awesome super excited to hear from both of you guys probably some of the biggest uh stars i don't know what you guys like to call yourselves um movie buffs that we've had on uh on on the podcast so far um i uh, absolutely loved a california christmas thought it was a fantastic movie and the and i've i was kept following you there brad uh and you kept posting every single day like oh it's another day where we're number one mm -hmm. and you just kept doing that i was like holy crap yeah <laughs> i was, was really cool i was say, yeah. right there holy crapping with you you know i we, we, loved it. <laughs> we put our hearts into it we felt it was a, a a really good film but you know i i don't know about sean but i i was really overwhelmed at the reception i'm so pleased that so many people you know enjoyed it and and found that it was a really you know warm holiday respite from a really challenging year so it was it was nice 
you know, to be able to give that to people. Well, if, if you guys checked out my awesome. social media, you would see how excited I was. I was literally doing dancing videos, making a total fool of myself every <laughs> every day that it was number one again. So uh, if you find me on social media, you can see those ridiculous attempts at, at doing. I mean, I tried it. I was doing head spin. I mean, I tried to do a head spin and almost broke my neck. Uh, but yeah, I was very, very excited uh, as well and totally blown away. I think everybody involved, we, we obviously set out to do the best movie we could do, but the reception was uh, overwhelming and, and uh, uh, obviously so welcomed. And I think everything is about timing and I think we came in with a, a, a warm, a heartfelt story at the right time and, and it really connected and found an audience. I just have to step in and say that that cool. John's dancing videos were really a highlight. He, he was taking requests. I, uh, <laughs> I, I I requested a backflip, and I think he got like the robot and the macarena and the risky business. Oh man, <laughs> well worth checking those out. <laughs> was this your guys' biggest project? Oh, definitely. Well, like your biggest accomplishment, you would say. I, yeah, I mean, uh, I think it's definitely um, uh, career uh, highlight as far as, you know, I think it's found the widest audience for sure of any project that I've certainly worked on. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, Netflix obviously is a worldwide platform. And and uh, when we, I, I have a couple other films on Netflix and we've trended before, we've made the popular lists and things like that. And that's always a huge celebration in and of itself. Um, but then when this went number one, it was very almost surreal. Like we're like, whoa, we're number one in the U.S. And then um, I believe it was our composer actually, uh, Jamie uh, Christofferson, who then checked, like, was able to find the world standings on stuff. And it was like the very next day, he's like, guys, we're number one in the world. And then that, you know, just kept going and kept going. We're just like, wow, it's amazing. Well, one of the things I thought was significant is is the movie was number 13 for the year. Like yeah, over was... all genres. And, and you gotta you know, consider that the movie was only in release for two weeks, 126th yeah. of the year, and it was still number 13. That's just... That was mind blowing, absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, it's incredible to see like how far that went and in, in, in getting to those top of the charts. So through production, you know, and through marketing, what do you think are the biggest aspects that got you there? I think uh, really honestly, it's, it was, um, uh, a lot to do with timing and, and messaging, you know, people, I think we're at a point at which they really are hungering for these kinds of stories. And, and if you saw a lot of the movies that, that were doing well, um, especially in these last, the last couple months of 2020, it's these kind of heartfelt, you know, um, inspiring stories. Um, that, that are going to make you feel good. They might make you cry, but they also make you feel good type of thing. And I think, I think that that uh, it was kind of a perfect storm on 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 our part. And it being a Netflix original, this was our first Netflix original. Well, my first Netflix original, and I think Brad's as well. Um, and uh, so it had some marketing there for sure because it, it, having that uh, um, uh, title of a Netflix original, it, it already created some buzz there. Chris, the Christmas movie genre is a huge movie genre. It's, it's almost has its own marketing just by being a, a, a Christmas movie in of itself. Um, and then being on a platform like a Netflix, it, it is the largest platform in the world. Um, uh, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, it's kind of that perfect storm of timing and people wanting that. And, and I think it's also has to do with the great, 
uh, writing and script and performances. So you have, um, you know, all these really great heartfelt, like Amanda Detmer and, and uh, Lauren Swickard. They're, the scenes that they do together are just, they crush me every time. I mean, from reading it to filming it to doing the editing, uh, I, I came to tears a couple times just in editing. And, and a lot of that had, uh, I mean, I cried on set. I literally cried on set while filming some of those scenes because I have some personal connection to, to some of that stuff. So it hit me really hard. And then even in the editing process, it got, brought me to tears again. I'm like, it's getting me again. Really? I can't believe it. And that's a testament to <laughs> those performances. I think that, that Amanda and Lauren gave, and then you had, um, uh, Josh and Lauren had really wonderful, uh, genuine, obviously chemistry, but also scenes together. And then Josh had some very humorous stuff in there as well. And, uh, and then the Manny and Leo characters, which of course is, uh, uh, Ali Afshar and, and, um, David Del Rio brought that kind of levity and, and humor to it and, and kind of helped balance those two pieces out. And even when we were making the movie, we were trying to figure out that balance, like, because, and Brad will attest to this, David Del Rio is so funny. He's so hilarious just in, in real life, just on set and where he can take something. And I love to let people, um, uh, performers go, especially if they have that kind of, um, uh, talent in that way to just riff and, and ad lib and create these things. And we had stuff in there that's so funny and we, we couldn't quite make it make sense in the edit, but so we have tons of outtakes, but it was that balance, like trying to figure out how much humor do we bring into it uh, to balance out the kind of heavy, uh, emotional side of it. And, and so that it'll, it'll feel more balanced and, and give people the ups and downs without being too extreme. And, um, uh, also testament to our editor, Brett uh, Hedlund, for, for being able to find that balance. And, and uh, um, again, just another piece of why I think it found its audience. Yeah, I would, I would uh, you know, echo Sean's sentiments about the script. Um, you know, when I, when I originally read the script, I, I could tell it already that it was something very special. And, um, you know, Sean and the actors, of course, get a lot of credit for the performances, uh, I mean, there were times, you know, I remember in the scene with uh, Amanda and um, Lauren in the car or in the truck when she picks her mom up from the cancer yeah. treatment. Um, and I was standing there behind the camera filming Make Believe. And that performance was so compelling. I got tears in my eyes and I just wanted to move the camera and give them a hug because it was so, you know, it was so resonant even in that moment, even though I knew they were acting, they were mm -hmm. so convincing to be, you know, for me to be standing there two feet away from them. And, um, you know, all the actors bring it, um, you know, just just every character, you know, no matter how how large or small, it's a it's a it's a true ensemble film. And, you know, when we were getting feedback, you know, there's all these camps where, you know, oh, I'm rooting for Connor and, you know, here's the Manny and Leo people. And, you know, just everybody had their fans uh, for these characters. And, and it was just amazing how how, you know, nobody really stole the show. It was it was just the whole family. And. And even saying that too, that I really felt that Josh and Lauren had like a like a classic romantic couple chemistry, you know, like a you know a Bogey and Bacall kind of thing, or a you know Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. They just had that that spark that that you know they captured lightning in a bottle in a way that you just can't randomly do with 
you know, any two anonymous people. So, so they really brought something special to it. I'm sure you guys know some of that, the, the yeah. background there, right? Between them. Yeah. The, the, they're, yeah. they're married, right? Is that correct? Yeah. And so, and they, they met on, uh, on, uh, the previous, a previous film that I directed with the two of them. Uh, and so, uh, <laughs> kind of, you know, through casting, we, we didn't realize we were being matchmakers, but, uh, um, obviously they had chemistry <laughs> together and, uh, um, so yeah, that first movie, which is called roped and it's also on Netflix. Um, it's kind of a, a rodeo film that meets footloose and, um, he's, he's kind of the, he comes in with the traveling rodeo and, and her character is a, you know, small town gal who, um, uh, has big dreams and all that stuff. But anyways, they meet and, and kind of fall in love. But anyway, so they shared their first kiss on, on screen, um, uh, or on camera rather, you know, and, and, uh, it was really actually quite sweet story. And they, they obviously had chemistry and were developing feelings, but they didn't actually go on a date until after we stopped filming. But so I think all of us were really, um, just kind of so happy and tickled that they actually did fall in love in real life. And then they got married and then we come back around to this project and, and, uh, uh, it was actually really amazing how, well they work together because sometimes uh casting a couple could could cause some issues and really it was the opposite of that they're so supportive of each other um looking out for each other and um it just it was wonderful it made it made um the process easier because they both um number one they're both just easy to work with in general but um uh them having each other's backs was really great too like they were helping each other within the scenes and and uh and it was beautiful to watch cool yeah, yeah. um did you have something to say yeah i was just uh i was gonna say um no i think what i noticed i mean you know, between both of your answers is that you you guys both really appreciate the cast members and everybody that put all the effort and work into making this project happen um so my, my next question is is kind of two questions, but the first one is for you, Sean. The second one is going to be for you, Brad. It's kind of similar sort of lines for you, Sean. Um, when it comes to the directing, you know, obviously you're talking about like how these cast members really just brought their own sort of take to it, and it, and it felt like it was going kind of easy. For those moments that you had to really direct and, and show cast members what you want, t take us through the process of that, of what you do to help your cast members and your actors um, get the emotion and feeling that you want them to have. And then for you, Brad, same sort of line. How do you get that emotion on camera? Like, how do you decide that this is the shot that's going to get that perfect emotion that we need to get? So, um, so what's interesting about that is, is everybody is different, right? So every actor is different. Every actor has a different process. So it's not always, it's, it's hard to pinpoint. It's not the same answer for everybody. So I really just try and make them feel as comfortable as possible because when somebody's comfortable, then they, they, um, they can relax and just be in that moment because, uh, you know, we talk about this all the time in the, the kind of the acting world is it's, you know, you'll hear some cliches, things like acting is telling the truth or acting is reacting, which those are true. And that is what it is. But, um, in order to, to do that, I have, at least in my experience and, and have found that 
the more comfortable somebody is, the, the easier it is for them to get into that space, to just be natural, to just exist in these moments and, and experience them and react off the other person and, or other people in the, in the scenes. So for me, it's always trying to, to get them into that space um, where they're at least comfortable doing it. Or if it's a really traumatic, emotional, like, you know, crazy fired up thing, then it might be the opposite of that is helping get them into that headspace of being super angry or whatever, you know, that may be. Um, but for the most part, it is, is kind of being there for them and supportive, whether that is talking them through some emotions. If somebody needs to draw on something from real life, I'll be there for them to help, um, uh, you know, uh, coax or draw those memories up, you know what I mean? So again, there's, it's, it's, to, it's each individual, um, uh, how, how you get that and, uh, and, and the allowing some freedom. So, uh, I'm also somebody, I'm a writer as well, but, um, I'm always a, a director as long as the writer's okay with it. Um, who allows freedom to the actors to make it their own. Like if they wouldn't use that word in a certain sentence, that just doesn't feel natural to them. I'm not married to it at all, you know, like, or if they need to rephrase the sentence to make it uh, the way that it would just come out natural for them, that's, I'm always trying to give them freedom to do that. And then also we'll do takes where, you know, we're trying to uh, maybe get a specific thing uh, and we'll do them. And, and once I can, I feel like, okay, we've got that. I, a lot of times I'll try and let the actor uh, or actress um, uh, have a take that's their own. I go, look, we're going to do one more take and I want you to do, um, this is your take. So do whatever you want with this take. And uh, a lot of times that'll be the take we use, you know, in, in post, um, because it just gives them this relaxation, this freedom that, you know, whatever choice they want to make. Sometimes it's not the right choice, but a lot of times it is. It is. Um, again, it just is the most natural delivery of, of what we're trying to capture. So that's some really awesome advice. Um, and, and right before we move on, I want to expand just a little bit on what you said about um, finding that space with the actors and getting them comfortable. And you said it's different for everybody. How do you kind of, how do you find that with them? And even though it is different, do you kind of follow um, like a little psychological path um, that's the same or what do you do? It's just, just about getting to know them, right? So I try and take the, the, the you don't always get that luxury, right? Um, but I try and uh, always speak with them. Obviously, COVID makes stuff a little bit tougher um, in the past, especially with leads. Mm -hmm. I, I will, you know, we'll go out to dinner, we'll, we'll break bread, we'll get to know each other so that I can um, try and break down any barriers or things that, that are, uh, you know, that might cause it so that we can't connect in that way. Um, so it's really about that. It's not necessarily a psychological path because again, people are so different that, um, I approach it that way, just trying to get to know them. And in the, in the COVID time, it's, it's texting and emailing and, and FaceTiming and, you know, um, just kind of going through it in that process and, and, uh, and then talking to them about the character. So we, before shooting, we talk a lot about that character, what, what they mean to them, who they are to them. Uh, some actors, like this wonderful actor, Shane Graham, that Brad and I have both worked with uh, before. Uh, he's got a, a really amazing process of notes that he takes and uh, on his character and, and creates, obviously, the backstory. A lot of people do that, but he's so detailed in it. And I, I, I always think it's wonderful to kind of see 
the process uh, which where he goes with the character and what he's going to do with it. Actually, Casper Van Dien is similar in the same way. Um, and Casper will carry little tiny notes around, but not just his dialogue, but pieces of information. And so he'll have these little pieces of, you know, for different scenes, he'll have these little things, like it might be a little phrase that, that reminds him of, of who he is in this moment or, you know, so there's all these kinds of things. But the, the main thing is getting to know the, uh, these individuals, at least on some level to, to again, be able to, um, uh, help them tell their truth. Yeah. That's really great. I think a lot of kind of newer directors overlook that getting to know your actors. So that's really awesome. All right, Brad, your turn. Uh, well, for me, it's, 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 you know, it's all about emotional resonance. Um, I'm a extremely empathetic person, uh, which is, is beneficial, um, in, in filmmaking. Um, and you know, my work with art goes back way before I was a filmmaker and, you know, uh, creative expression has just always been a way for me to channel that that kind of um you know overdrive emotion that i pick up from other people and uh so the foundation is laid you know because i always want to be in tune with the director so you know we'll we'll have creative discussions so i have a sense of the aesthetic that they want um in the case of sean and i it's nice that we've worked together enough that that we already have a little bit of a shorthand um but we also for instance he referenced some um uh, robert redford movies some of the ones he directed like um river runs through it also uh, kevin costner's field of dreams um you know just kind of those really beautiful rural movies with with wide vistas and um you know just gorgeous lighting these you know, idyllic, serene places. And, and so that was kind of the foundation. And then I would go through and, and find some specific images and he would kind of be like, yes, that's the right direction or no, that's not really what I'm thinking. So when we got onto set, you know, there wasn't too much dialogue. And for the most part, you know, whatever I did, I think he was happy with, um, you know, maybe there was little tweaks here and there, but I felt like we really kind of got onto the same path um, and, uh, for instance, with, the, with the red barn, you know, I went in there and I said, you know, well, we've got the bottom third of it dressed, you know, and then we're going to have the chandeliers, but there's all this kind of what I felt was dead space. And I, I thought we needed some color. So Sean and I talked about that and he agreed and, and we both felt that red was the right way to go. And, and so that's kind of, you know, where that arrived at. Um, then as far as just you know, how we capture it. Um, as I read the script, you know, it, it comes alive in my mind and I, I see, um, you know, those characters, I see those locations, even if, even if we haven't scouted yet, you know, I, I picture my own version of those and, and, and I start building that emotional resonance of, of, you know, how I feel and where I think I might want to be, you know, should we play this in a wide, should we play this in a close up? you know, should there be a moving shot, um, and then I sketch out those ideas and I'll, I'll discuss them with the director and, and, you know, we'll either go with those ideas or, or, you know, we'll change them and we'll just evolve them. And then of course, when you get on set, um, you know, sometimes it's what you're expecting and it's nice to be prepared because you know what your coverage is going to be. But just like Sean said that he 
you know, will let the actors do a take and, and go where they want to go. You know, sometimes as you're seeing it in the moment, you think, well, it, you know, it really plays better from over here or, you know, let's do this shot or not do that shot. And um, I'm always a, I always make, you know, when I'm when I'm framing those images, I, I make them for it's like I'm making the movie for myself. But intellectually, I know I'm the, the, the proxy for the audience. So so I follow my intuitions mm -hmm. and there's not you know, there's not a formula. I don't say, oh, this should be framed that way or that should be framed another way. I mean, obviously, I know this may be a close up moment or that may be a wide shot moment. But in terms of exactly where that close up lands, is it head and shoulders? Is it ECU? Um, I kind of go with my feelings. Same thing on the moves, you know. Um, and again, of course, if the director gives input, you know, I will go with that. Um, but but also with eye lines, I'm a really big believer if you're if you're doing coverage that you want to see the actor's eyes, you want to you want to be as close to being that other character as possible. And so so I really love just mm -hmm. getting really tight to the eye line and 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 because so much of the performance is is in the face and in the eyes. Um, and uh, especially if I'm handheld, I'm really going, you know, instinctively and with my emotions, um, you know, the moment that I pan, um, you know, both Sean and I are musicians. Um, and it's, it's very interesting that, that even when you're shooting a scene, there's a rhythm. Um, and, and in your head, you can find it. You can like it helps me when I know I'm on this person and then I pan to that person and then I pan down to this thing and then back to them. And, and and it re it'll help me predict, and it's it's not a hundred percent accurate, but but it's surprisingly uh, uh, you know helpful to be able to just sense those beats with the actors and be able to anticipate that I need to be over here now. So um, you know, so this guy says his line, that person says their line, um, and uh, again, it's you know just to to bring it back to where I started is that emotional resonance. It's just it's trying not intellectualize it it's trying it was intentionally not imposing a formula you know again i take the, the 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 skeleton that i build with the director and then i take my creative impulses and and then on top of that i just i just lean where my emotions take me you know i wanted to uh, uh just uh, touch on something he talked about kind of just flowing and moving with it it's something really great uh, uh about brad in that is that uh Sometimes some of these projects, we, we really are, we're pressed for time and we don't have the time to grab every insert, every close up that we would love to have. And, um, but because of Brad being able to flow with stuff like that and find, you know, it, maybe that's, you know, the person's holding a phone in their hand and they, and they press, you know, a, they dial a number or something in that moment, um, him floating down there and catching that moment and then coming back up that becomes a piece that is really valuable in post that we didn't have time to grab, uh, you know, while we were filming. Uh, and so it's a really kind of a, uh, and I've worked with some other DPs who are really uncomfortable doing that. I, I have to tell you actually recent, not, not super recently, but fairly recently, um, I tried to suggest doing <laughs> that thing that you and I do, Brad, and, and, uh, they just kind of couldn't do it. And, uh, and I was really bummed because we never did get those ECUs. And so I was like, man, I really wish, you know, I wish I had Brad here uh, being able to do those kinds of moves because every single time, every project that I've worked with you, Brad, and that we've done those kinds of moves, we have used them in editing every time. There's not a single time that that shot has not been used. Or even if we cut around the move itself, that moment 
where you're down on their hands or you're, you know, somebody put their hand on the shoulder and you pan over and you catch that hand, you know, like those kinds of things. We have used them every time. It's so, so valuable. Um, and, and it's also from the perspective of the other person. So it makes sense in the edit when we use those pieces. Um, and uh, anyway, it's just something really great that Brad's uh, particularly really good at among all the other things he's great at. Well, I would, I would, yeah, I'd like to say that, that, that a lot of that comes from the fact that I've done editing, you know, and, and I've, yeah. I've been in that position, you know, or, or I've been looking over the shoulder of somebody and they're like, son of a bitch, you know, I need a cutaway. How do I get, you know, from here yeah. to there? Uh, and, and I'm very cognizant of that. And I'm also cognizant of the production value of being able to, you know, even though you're tight, you have that insert of the cup of coffee or the cutaway to the waiter. And, um, you know, the very first shoot I worked with Sean on the World War II movie, um, I actually didn't operate. I had two operators. And I told those guys because, you know, not everything we're shooting needs two cameras, but I said, you guys always be shooting. If you don't have, um, you know, if, if you don't have a specific shot, get me a cutaway, get me an insert, you know, think of, of details. And, 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 you know, Sean will remember there's stuff like, you know, even in between setups, I'd say, you know, we, we had this crane lifting this airplane. I want y'all to go up there and just, you know, Sean and I don't have come, time to come supervise it, but just get me B-roll of the dude with the controls. All that stuff is in there. Yeah. And they yeah. were trained so well that we had this one scene at an officer's club and it starts with this beautiful steady cam out and we've got the guys talking, but, but, you know, then they, they wrapped us and we didn't get close-ups of the band and I was like son of a bitch I wanted that and I looked down there and the people the crew is <laughs> down there shooting that shit and I'm like you know what they learn fast and 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 that stuff's in there too so hmm. so yeah I mean there's just no excuse and and part of that I learned you know from my early days as a live camera operator um you know they used to tell us that um you know if I was doing concerts they say always give me shots never you know I may cut to you, so don't be screwing around or, you know, if you have to repo, repo fast or, you know, do a repo that can that can play on screen. So so I'm always cognizant. I mean, we're paying for that camera. We're paying for that person. So, you know, give us value, you know, you know, help out the editor, help out the director. That's always, always in my mind. So I'm glad you appreciate it, Sean. But it's yeah, I'm always thinking that way. How you know, how can I give you guys a little something extra? And it's so valuable. It really is. Yeah, that's really awesome. I love all that information. That's really, really cool. Um, Cause I'm also the cinematographer here for Dissolve Media. So um, my next question for you, Brad, um, kind of going off of that. Um, so it's easy to get good shots when you have a good location and a good crew. If, if you are really confined to, let's say like uh, a small room, white walls, stuff like that, like very non-cinematic stuff, how do you tend to, and it may be different in every situation, but how do you tend to jazz it up with uh, like set or lighting or, or whatever? Well, you know, I, things like that, I, I try to look at them as a challenge to the extent that I can. You know, I, I, I'm definitely not a problem first kind of guy. I'm not a complain first kind of guy. Uh, I'm like, you know, okay, this is what I got. How do I make it better? Um, and, and if mm -hmm. I see something like that and it just absolutely sucks, then I start thinking, you know, what are my alternatives? For instance, could I move this into a different room? Could I shoot from an unconventional angle? I mean, 
you know, if I've got I, I, no DP, I think likes white walls. And, you know, I think on most lower budget stuff, you're stuck with them because you can't you can't repaint. I mean, even in California Christmas, if I'd have had my way, you know, and probably Sean, too, we'd have painted some of those walls. Um, but, uh, you know, so so you, you do what you can with light. You know, you pull the actors away from the walls. You put light on the actors. You let the, the walls fall off. Um, I've also seen Brad create shapes on the walls, you know, like, like he's, he's shaped light and done cool things or, or, you know, speckled light on the wall or whatever. Or, you know, if there's a dresser, like backlight the dresser. So it now separates and has a fall off on the, the back. You were doing some of that stuff when we were in China on Doolittle that I was just like, this is so amazing looking like you were putting lights behind you know, cabinets and different things like that, that all of a sudden there's this glow and it shaped that plain wall, but it also made that dress or that cabinet stand out and things like that. It would just, you know, uh, he, he does really creative stuff, especially with light uh, that. And if I go into a space like that and I see those white walls, you know, I'll talk to the production designer and I'll say, you know, can we have some pictures? Can we get a dresser and put a lamp on it? So maybe I'll let it go dark and I'll put the lamp on. So there's a little, you know, bit of a highlight back there. Um, you know, just 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 thinking of, of all the ways that I could keep it interesting. And I'm always cognizant of everything in the frame. I mean, even though, you know, I'm I'm framing the person, um, you know, I'm looking at, uh, you know, is there an ugly plant back there? Uh, is there a symmetrical balance? I mean, I might, you know, have them move some crap. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just always want to be making making nice frames. It's not just about the subject, because, again, I come from a world of fine art. So it's the whole canvas that I'm being aware of. Um, you know, I'm looking for reflections. I'm looking, you know, what's going on through that window. Um, uh, you know what? What's reflecting in somebody's glasses? You know, in any moment, I'm 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 very aware of it, and uh, um, you know, but but it's always and also you know part of it is you know kind of like magicians use uh, um, um, uh, misdirection. What's <laughs> no, what's the word? Is uh, anyway they, where they're directing your eye misdirection? Yeah, and yeah, you know, yeah. where they're where they're directing your eye, and so I might do that with a color or a highlight. Um, you know, I'm always, I'm always paying attention when I, when I look at a, a, an image, I mean, I can look at it objectively and I'm like, okay, there's a face and there's eyes and there's a, 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 a frame, but I also look at it in abstract, like where's, where is my eye drawn? You know, what, like if I have an actor and then in the background, there's like this really bright red thing, or there's a highlight and I'm like, my eye keeps wanting to go there. And I'm like, I know that's going to steal attention from the actor. And so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll reframe it or I'll, you know, put something in there, or I'll even just say in post, we'll, we'll pull that color out, you know, so that the actor, you know, wherever I want their eye to go, you know, that's, that's the thing that I'm, I'm aware of. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I would never be happy just with a person and a white wall. I would do, you know, any <laughs> one of those things to not just have a blank white wall, unless I'm shooting THX 1138 and it makes sense, you know? So. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of great information. I know that was super helpful for a lot of listeners that are, are especially in that low budget sort of area of filmmaking right now um and so just hearing from a professional just all of these really creative ideas to liven up a scene when you don't have much 
with you uh, is is super amazing. And I know that uh, Jasper here is our cinematographer. I, I he's taking notes like crazy over here. So <laughs> literally, yeah. uh, so super super awesome. Um, well, I would just like to now now. For, can I jump in real quick? Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, you yeah, know, I, yeah, of course. I, some of my early days were working for Roger Corman. You know the the B movie king with with no money. And, and I just learned to lean into that whole, you know, resourcefulness thing, you know, MacGyver and, and man, some of my best stuff is because I didn't have the money for the thing I think I needed. You know, sometimes when you don't have that thing, you pull off the shelf, you come up with an even better idea and an even cooler shot and something far more original than if, you know, you'd been able to roll that techno crane in. So keep that in mind and, and, and just, you know, be yeah. a scavenger, walk around, look around the house, you know, go around outside in the, I, I used to work at Brad, Brad's the king of that. You'll be like, what is Brad doing? He's pulling tires from around a thing. Like, yeah, he's always thinking that way. Like make it build more, do, do more things to it. You know, I used to, I would go look in the corner, yeah. like, like Roger Corman's studio was in an old, a lumber yard and I would just go look in the little crannies and I would look in the trash bins. Um, I, I did a, a movie once called Torque, which is like this uh, $55 million Warner Brothers movie. And I was second unit on it. And there was this scene where we had Martin Henderson. I was picking up one a, a scene for one with one of the lead actors and I put a light on his face and I thought, man, I just need to break it up. And I had, you know, all these really experienced grips there you know what do you want we got a 10 ton truck out there and i'm like man it, it, it's not a kukaloras it's, it's nothing on that truck and and i literally i got up and i walked around and i found an old crumpled up c47 bag a clothespin bag and, and i walked up and i stuck it in the light and i'm like guys this is it and they're just looking at me incredulously and they, they brought it <laughs> in and they clamped it and, and, and you know what, but that was, that was the thing. It wasn't the, it wasn't the money stuff. And it's only because, you know, I had leaned yeah. into that, that I had that sensibility. So, so I say, embrace it. I say, you know, don't, don't sit there Absolutely. and be feeling bad that you have, don't have the, the big budget. It's like, you know, because you can do better stuff with, with this than you can with money. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and I'm, I'm the same way. And that's something that we try to really push in this podcast is being resourceful and being creative, you know, and like, <clears throat> sure, I have a, a lot of good equipment, but like, I, I literally spent $100 and I got uh, dozens of um, flags and diffusers just because I went to like Joann's, you know, instead of buying a $500 uh, Ultra Bounce or something, you know, and, and I think that that's really important is to be resourceful. Like, we were shooting a, a beer ad and it ended up looking amazing, but I put a uh, literally a Walmart bag over one of my LED lights because it was just too harsh and like just stuff like that. So um, yeah, I'll let you ask your next question, Andrew. Yeah, no, um, I think you summed up the amazingness, the creativity and like like Brad said, the MacGyvering of, of how to get things done. That's, that's what I love about filmmaking and just creativity in general is that you can just do such incredible things with just the things around your house. Um, but anyway, my question for you there, Sean, is as as the leader on set, as a director and the leader on set, um, there's most likely plenty of days where shoots get really long, where people are probably tired and exhausted. Um, what is your secret and key to keeping up morale for all cast and crew so that way everybody's happy, everybody's putting their A game, whether it's a 10-hour shoot or a 16-hour shoot? What, what, do you, what do you do to keep that morale up? 
I think in like in a general sense, I try and make the set enjoyable and, and uh, people's, uh, you know, time on set. Uh, I try and and that's down to who we we crew up with, you know, even like my first ADs. Um, like uh, uh, Marco uh, Bargellini, who who we've Bargellini, who we've uh, uh, worked with a bunch, Brad and I, and Daniel uh, Aspromonte, who we've also worked with. Um, it's we're not that kind of uh, you know screaming at people, yelling at people type of set. It's I want people to have to enjoy their work. I want people to have a, a decent time, and uh, so I try and lead with positivity. I try and lead with a, a really you know kind of undying positive attitude you know, hopefully not too over the top, but just, you know, I'm trying to let people see my passion for the project and hopefully inspire that way. But also, you know, uh, I try and take time to say hello to all the people in all the departments. I say great job at the end of the day. Like I try and build that rapport. I'll go, I go around to the, all the departments when we wrap at night and if we're on a non-union shoot, I'll help pack up. I will help put stuff away. Um, and, uh, because I want them to understand and know that I understand, I have done a lot of these jobs in this business and that's, you know, I think very valuable in kind of understanding, empathizing. Um, and also if you've got a crew that are slacking off, you know what, you know, they could be improving upon, but most of the time everybody's really working hard. Um, so it's more about that empathy and, and, and empathizing with the struggles that they have to go through in their positions and trying to let them know that, that I understand. Um, so it's that kind of thing where I try and build a rapport with the crew, um, so that when we do have those really tough nights and we have to dig super deep. They're not like, hey, I don't want to work for this a-hole. You know, hopefully I've built that rapport where they go, hey, Sean's asking us to push for another hour. We're going to do it, you know. And, of course, I'm not perfect, and I'm sure it's not perfect every time. But but that is one of the big things I do uh, uh, or one of the, the more kind of encompassing things I do. But also I, I'll work a lot of times with the with the AD in figuring out our schedules and this is kind of a little little secret tip is where we can and of course this also doesn't always work out but wrap early on a night like if there's a way to do that like once or twice in the in the in the um course of a shoot that really can boost morale as well like hey we wrapped two hours early on this shoot and so people actually could go get a hot meal at a restaurant obviously pre-pandemic but um uh, so things like that, like consciously trying to figure that out. If it's possible, it's not always possible, but if it's possible, like, Hey, look, we got this stuff done early on this day. You know, that maybe is going to open this up. Let's surprise everybody and try and get this thing done and, and, and wrap early on this day. And, and, uh, um, and that helps also build that rapport for that night that we have to go over. You know what I mean? Um, so, but again, I think it's just about, uh, overall, it's about respecting everybody and, and treating people with respect and hopefully helping them enjoy the job that they're doing because you'll get so much, uh, I, at least in my experience, so much harder working, uh, uh, people and, and, um, and people willing to go the extra mile for you when you treat them with that respect. Yeah. I would also add, you know, something else that Sean does um, and, and, and it's something I've always done too. And it's where our styles dovetail is uh, he makes an effort to make people feel appreciated, to acknowledge them, um, you know, to acknowledge specific things that, oh, that, you know, that outfit was really nice or, or, you know, gosh, that was really cool. What you did with that lighting over there. Um, you know, it makes people feel like, 
they're recognized and that they're contributing and that they're not just a worker drone, you know, because those people who are just cracking a whip and being dicks, um, you know, that's no fun. And people, people just feel like they're a cog in a machine. They don't feel like they're a creator. They don't feel like they're um, being appreciated and um, it's demoralizing. And, um, you know, also, you know, when you're being that way, like what Sean said, you, you know, they're looking at their watch and they're saying, you know, it's, you know, two hours to go home. And, and, and if you get to that 13th hour, you know, they're gonna either be like, yeah, no, we're not staying or, you know, they're gonna be grudging. But if they like you, if they feel like you're a friend, if if they feel like they're appreciated, if they feel like, hey, we're all in this together, you know, it's, it's, a, whole, it's a whole different story. And um, so it's, it's just so valuable. And, and again, that's something that Sean does is everybody feels like they're an important part of it and, and that they're acknowledged. And it is, I mean, we, it, takes, it, takes, it takes those 100 people to make a movie or 50 or 75, whatever it is. It takes that many people to make a movie, uh, certainly on the level that we're trying to, to make them on, you know? Um, and, and I know Brad and I have both done the full on guerrilla shoot with 10 people and, you know, but it takes, still takes those 10 people, you know, I mean, I'm sure, yeah, you could do, you could do a, you could do a, you know, a stop motion by yourself or something. And then you could say you did it all, but most projects, you, you, it's a, a team effort, hundred percent team effort. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, I think it's just so important in general that you recognize people's contributions to that. And, uh, um, and uh, not just recognizing, but letting them know that that uh, you appreciate the hard work that they're doing. Um, and uh, you know, I try my best. Maybe I miss some people here and there, but I really, really do try to make sure everybody understands and knows. Even transportation department, even you know, uh, the craft services. You know, <laughs> you, you gotta uh, let them know that they're doing a good job, and uh, and uh, that without them, you know. Without craft services, we'd all starve on set. So you gotta, you know, everybody is important. So um, yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of the jam, at least uh, in my experience. Man, I'm loving all the really good information that's that's coming here. Um, and I think, like you said, when you make it, when you make everybody feel like they're a family, um, not only is it most important that everybody have a good time, because everybody is there to create, everybody is there to live out their passion, um, but it also just gives you a better movie. And like, not everybody's grudging, they're, you're going to get better performances, like everything, you know, everybody's going to have a good time, it's going to show in the final result. Um, so kind of back to uh, California Christmas specifically, I wanted to know for each of you guys, and the answer is probably different, um, what was the funniest thing that happened on set? And then what was the most complicated or worst thing that happened? And how did you uh, resolve that? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I can't think of a funny thing. <laughs> and um, the, the most complicated stuff, the, the, two, the two scenes that I was just dreading was the barn and the, uh, the bar, because I... I you know, they're both big spaces and we didn't have a lot of time. And, you know, in a perfect world with both of them, I'd have requested a pre-light day, you know, to get the people in there and get that shit lit. Because, you know, to me, I never want, you know, Sean or anybody else to be waiting on my team. And and when I have a big space like that to light, I'm thinking, well, you know, son of a bitch, how, how do I get ahead? Um, and uh, what we did in the barn is we actually, I don't remember what we shot before the barn, but but I had worked with Marco, the AD, such that it was a, a light enough thing that I could spin the team off. And so I had two guys in the barn already setting stuff up. So when we came to it, it was like, 
80, 90% of the way. Um, and we just had a little bit of tweaking to do. And then also, you know, Sean, we started looking out the barn door. So, so we, you know, we, all we, I needed was that red light in the foreground and then they were behind us, you know, dialing it in, um, you know, right up till the last minute because it's just a, such a big space. Um, and then for the bar, um, you know, I, I was super worried about that because uh, I still had in my mind, you know, I've been doing this for a while and I, I had the old model where we're going to have to put stuff up there and run power cables, but we had those Astera Titans, which were battery powered. So I didn't have to run any cables um, and the, the ceiling was low, so I couldn't hide anything. It's like, whatever those lights are, we're going to see them. And the tubes just felt natural. I mean, they just fit. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the gaffer, uh, they put them up there with some uh, zip ties. I really don't even know what they zip tied them to, but they, they got them all <laughs> up. They spaced them out nicely. Um, you know, they had a great color. Uh, they, were, they were wireless. They worked through an app. And so we could super quick turn them up and on and change the change the the, the levels. Um, and then and, and how about that battery life? The battery life literally would last I, all day. I couldn't believe it. I it, when we started, I was like, turn them off between takes and charge them at lunch. And they're like, we don't need to do that. And and oh my god, those freaking things lasted all day long. Um, yeah, that blew me away. I was like, wow, technology. And then, <laughs> and then with with Sean and uh, and Marco, we we planned it out where the big wide of the whole bar was, was a little bit later. So we started on the stage with Caitlin. So I had, we lit that and that was done. And again, they were behind us getting the rest of that crap. And I said, okay, so for the next thing, just get the entrance on the opposite side. So they started that bit. And, and then while we were shooting that, they were doing the part in the middle. So, so we did not- about creative, Yeah, about creative scheduling, creative scheduling. So allowing them to keep working while we're shooting other pieces and kind of working, you know, outside in uh, to 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 make that all work. And that was between, you know, me and Sean and Marco just putting our heads together about, you know, how can how can I work with with Marco's, you know, actor needs and with Sean's, you know, what he wants for the directing, but in such a way that they're not waiting on me. I'm always, always thinking about that. You know, how do I get ahead? And that was something I learned when I was working for Roger Corman, too, because, you know, they're like, you just have no time. And I'm like, OK, how do I game this system? You know, what how do I play this to my advantage? And I mean, another thing I'll do, too. Too, is if I'm going from a complicated setup to a complicated setup, I'll, I'll ask the AD, is there something from the schedule that I can put in the middle that's simple so that I can, you know, in between this, we're doing something simple and I can spin people off to get ahead on that next thing. And um, so I'm always thinking about that stuff. But even with that knowledge, I was still, man, I was nervous right up till the end. And I was just like, oh, my God, just, I don't ever want them to be looking at me going, um, you know, are you ready? And, and that may have <laughs> happened once or twice, but it wasn't too bad. And we made our day and we got all our shots. And, and, and I was really happy with, with the way both the barn and the, and the bar looked. So um, and, and again, you asked for a funny thing. And um, I just the, the only funny thing I can think of is is um, and I'm sure there were others, but the one that pops into my mind is is you know Sean mentioned earlier David Del Rio's improvising, and um, man when they cut him loose, I mean some of that stuff was so funny. Uh, I, I had to take my hand off the camera to keep from shaking it, and uh, and he just got. I saw a couple of takes. I saw a couple of takes where the camera was shaking because he was laughing. Uh, so. 
So, and it just made me think that, and I knew in the moment that it's like, you know, this is just not going to work in the movie, but, but I'm also thinking, wow, we gotta, we gotta do a vehicle with David that's suited to that, you know, just like, just like 100%, yeah. you know, just like with Robin Williams, you know, how, how it's like, you just, you give him movies that showcase that ability to just go off into left field. And, and that's what David needs is he really needs those kind of opportunities. Yeah, yeah, I, he he really is just that funny. I mean, there was a bunch of moments uh, um, funny with him. So that you know, uh, him and him and Allie, like, uh, there's a scene where he uh, screams and wakes, you know, as he's waking up, and that was really funny to shoot. Um, or them both in those ridiculous animal print face masks, that was really fun to shoot, and just uh, we were all laughing the whole time because uh, just how ridiculous they looked. Um, and uh, another funny moment was was Josh chasing around that chicken. And man, he could not catch that thing to save his life. Um, and so basically we started out with saying, okay, you, you can't catch that. We don't want you to catch the chicken. Uh, we want to see you chasing and jumping and missing and, and doing all of that. And then we're like, but then, you know, we'll do the take where, you know, really try and grab it. <laughs> there was no way he was catching that chicken. Like, you just could not get it. So, which was fine. We had a backup plan, uh, you know, if he couldn't actually catch it. And actually, he did end up catching that chicken once, but it was in a different scene where he wasn't meant to catch that chicken. And he actually did got it by the leg. Um, but uh, um, but no chickens were harmed in the making. Uh, he was very gentle. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, so there was lots of funny stuff. I think in terms of difficulty, just from like, a almost from a technical standpoint, we had a scene where they were both on this, you know, that's, it's a 1948, um, panhead, uh, Harley Davidson. And that thing's really difficult to drive. It is a, what's called a suicide shift knob on it. So you have to let go of the gas and to, to like shift the thing. And it's, it's really, it's, it's tricky. And he had our two stars on the bike with his real life wife on the back of it while driving it. We didn't do a poor man. Uh, we didn't do a uh, process trailer or anything like that for it. They just really drove. Now, luckily Josh is a very experienced motorcycle rider and he did take time before we shot it to, to get to know the bike and to practice. But so we went out and shot that kind of off schedule uh, just super small crew, just Brad and myself, uh, and, and like Marco and then, and I think Marco, right. Wasn't Marco there or was he not there? Yeah, he was there. So just really small, t uh, crew. And I drove alongside the, the motorcycle while Brad was hanging out the window with the camera and just trying to grab some of the shots were really difficult because he had to not only hang out the, the, the window with the camera, but also pull his own focus um and and try and grab those scenes so and and i thought the shots turned out beautiful and and but you know in the moment we were going man how are we, is this really going to work and and we're just working with with street lights that are out there you know we didn't set up any external lights so and we were shooting it in slow motion and all of that fun stuff so it was really interesting and we, even though we were cleared to shoot on that street a police officer that didn't, I guess, know about us being cleared to shoot on that street showed up because somebody called and complained that people were drag racing uh, on that street. And of course, we were going like 15 miles an hour, and and I, we were side by side with that motorcycle though. So if you you know if you just saw it, maybe you would think we were drag racing. But um, and we all got, oh my gosh, are we really going to get in trouble by the police right now? Um, and uh, and we're 
nervous, but also kind of cracking up at the same time. And of course, within five minutes, it was all cleared up and we were able to continue shooting. Um, but, uh, but I was flashing back to some of my guerrilla filmmaking days where we did, you know, it's really interesting is I did get shut down once by police officers, uh, with no permit. We didn't have any permits, you know, it was just very, very guerrilla style. And, um, uh, it was a, like a sting operation because the, it was at a bar and this rival bar called the police and said, Hey, these guys are going to be shooting a movie there. And they told them it was a porn movie. And, um, and so these undercover cops literally, cause we, we didn't shut the bar down. We just put up notices. Hey, you know, we're going to be filming in here. And if you're in the, in this part of the bar while we're filming, you're signing off on, you know, one of those kind of notices. And these guys came in, they helped, they held yeah. bounces. Like they were just suit. And that's, you know, kind of how we rolled. And these guys were, we thought were super nice and, and they were undercover cops. They were vice cops. And then at the end of the whole thing, they, they, number one, uh, when we were finishing, we were buying people drinks. We're like, Hey, you guys all participated, you know, thank you so much. And so we started, you know, trying to give goodwill and these guys put down some drinks and then they finally said, Hey, we're cops and we're going to confiscate all your gear and all this stuff. And we're like, what are you talking about? You're not permitted to shoot here, this whole thing. And, uh, the owner of the restaurant, because these particular cops did not show their badge, the owner I mean, this guy was quick thinking. He said, let me talk to you guys out front. He he led them out front of the restaurant. And as soon as they stepped out of the doors, he went inside and shut the door and locked it. And then he he, <laughs> he called the he called the actual he called just the regular police and said, hey, there's two people out here. They did not show us badges. They said they're vice cops, but they have not shown us badges. I have locked them out because I don't believe I don't believe them and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, this guy was very crafty. He was going, everybody look, and there was a rear entrance. He goes, load the gear, load your stuff. I don't want you guys to lose your, you lose your, your, you know, everything you filmed today mm. and, and, you know, take off. And so that all that stuff was loaded and they, and they left and, and everything was cleared up in the end. But, um, it, I think there was a hundred dollar infraction for, for not having the proper permit or something like that, which we happily paid. Um, but it was really interesting that, uh, that we might've lost that footage and, and some of the gear that day had that not happened. Um, but, uh, but I flashed back to that a little bit. <laughs> Those cops showed up and went, no way. Wouldn't it, not this again. But, uh, but yeah, so that was uh, kind of funny and, and, uh, difficult, uh, little piece to, to shoot. Something I'd like to say for the benefit of those, you know, low budget indie filmmakers, uh, you know, most of this movie was shot with about $100,000 worth of camera equipment with red and Kawa anamorphic lenses. Uh, but that scene that, that Sean just talked about on the motorcycle, we shot it on his 4K Blackmagic uh, pocket cinema camera, which is like, what, $1,500? Yeah. Those yep. things are insane. Yeah. They're yeah, not they're even $1,000 right now. And then, yeah, yeah. And, then a, and then a lens he got like at a, uh, uh, like at a, a pawn shop and, and, a, and an SLR magic anamorphic adapter, which is like 500 bucks. Oh, uh, love those. Yeah. Yeah. Not only that, a lot of the B roll and the establishing shots, we, we got those on our days off. Again, we're just trying to pull stuff off the schedule because the more we could pull off, the more time he could spend you know, working with the actors. And so, you know, before we- That montage sequence, sequence, like 75% of it is the Blackmagic uh, Pocket 4K on our day off, just Brad and I going and filming stuff. And 
just happened to be at the same spot that Josh was while he was, you know, uh, working on the farm. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you which scene it is because I just want you to know how well it integrates. But there is a dialogue scene. There's an entire dialogue scene with actors that was shot on that Black Magic Pocket Cinema 4K camera with that that anamorphic adapter. So you know it, it integrated perfectly. You know we, Keith Roush did an amazing job color grading. But but even so, it wasn't difficult. It was easy. You know to make all that stuff match. We shot it in RAW. So so you should never ever again yeah. you know think oh yeah. damn I don't have a I don't have a I don't have a red and I don't have Kawa anamorphics. I can't you know do you know get pro results. Well that's just that's just not true. It's crazy how cheap consumer equipment is getting that can really like the black magic uh, cameras can really fit in with reds and Alexas and like that's just insane. Um, did you did you have a question or I had a question? If you want to. Um, along those lines, I just want to say the, the, the equipment is not going to make the film good. I mean, just because you have an anamorphic lens or just because you have a red, you know, it's it's really it's the people behind the camera. You know, it's like you yeah, get yeah. Roger Deacon. It's going to look better than some schlub with, you know, uh, a, a Panavision DXL. So so that's the thing is yeah. That, yeah. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, I need this camera. I need that camera. It's like, oh, you know, you know, that camera sucks and this camera is better. It's like, you know, screw all that. You could give me almost any camera you know, and, and I can make it work. And so, yeah. so never, never make that assumption that, 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 oh, just because you're shooting on film or just because you're anamorphic, suddenly it's going to be uh, a superior quality or a superior aesthetic. It's, it's not that it's, it's the hands of the person you put that gear into, even if it's just an iPhone. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and like I was saying earlier, like I, I got all of those like flags and bounces and diffusion for super cheap. And some of the best shots in in my reel have been from actually the original black magic pocket camera um, oh yeah yeah uh, in raw and it's like the those things are insane and uh so i wanted to ask do you guys have any other um like uh recommendations for newer indie filmmakers um in, in terms of of keeping that budget low i'm a huge fan of of vintage glass so uh yeah. i'm always searching ebay and you know uh there's just some really, really cool looking lenses, uh, like the images they produce are really cool and they're not expensive. I mean, I've gotten some of them for under a hundred dollars. Mm. And again, we pair them with something like oh, yeah. the SLR magic, uh, and, uh, and you can get just incredible results. I mean, uh, one of this, the, the dialogue scenes he's talking about, we actually used a Russian, a 58 millimeter Russian, um, lens, uh, uh, Helios, um, and uh, paired with that SLR magic and it, it, it just created just such a beautiful kind of, uh, bokeh or bokeh in the background. And, um, I got that lens for like $79 or something like that, you know? Um, but I love doing that stuff. Like that's like a really creative, fun thing to do is, is try and pair a new technology like a black magic with an old lens and just kind of experiment and see, see what the results you get. And, um, uh, so I, I highly recommend, you know, trying to experiment with that kind of stuff because anybody can go buy the brand new, whatever Sony Canon lens and get this tack sharp, perfect image. Um, but then it all kind of looks the same, you know, after a while. So, um, uh, I recommend trying to think outside that box and, and, uh, and not be afraid of pairing old with new. Um, and, uh, yeah, that would be my suggestion. Yeah. I think that's really great. 
because a lot of people are all after the the brand new super sharp type stuff and it's like i mean if you're looking for narrative filmmaking a lot of it is is very like vintage glass softer images you know and that's the halation and everything and like that's what comes with vintage glass and um along with the the original pocket camera like also 90 percent of my cinematography reel has been shot on canon fds and, and a couple with like the uh anamorphic adapter that I, that I borrowed and stuff so sorry i just wanted to say that go ahead brad um you know I, for many many years i resisted buying any gear because i mean first of all i just never wanted to sink tens of thousands of dollars into gear uh the other reason was yeah, yeah. Uh, because of obsolescence and that's only become worse. I mean, you know, the, the hot camera this year is going to be the passe camera next year. And I never wanted to chase that. I also never wanted to have the maintenance costs and the insurance. Um, and the other disincentive for me was, um, you know, by the time those kind of uh, cameras were, were uh, something I might consider, the only people who ever asked me, you know, to provide gear were people who didn't have enough money to pay my rate and and much less a camera rental. So, you know, why am I going to subsidize your film? I guess if you're a new person and you need a reel, maybe that's something you think about, but it never made sense to me. Um, having said that, you know, I, you know, every once in a while I have a little thing where I'd be like, wow, I'd kind of like to, you know, I wish I had something to shoot that, or I've got a friend that's got a personal project and, and, you know, they have to rent a camera. And, and so, I did finally buy a Sony A7S II, um, and uh, uh, you know I've shot a, a few shorts with it. I've actually shot some uh, some paying projects. I shot some commercials and music videos with it. Um, you know we would supplement. We'd rent a second one um, when we when Sean and I did uh, uh, the the World War II movie. You know at the time I didn't have one yet, but he had a, a Sony A7S II, which he's since swapped out for the the Black Magic. But there were some shots in the cockpit, and he's like, you know, Brad, I want, I want the uh, the the uh, steering wheel thing in the foreground, and then I want their face. And I'm like, well, you know, we couldn't. These were real planes; we couldn't pull them apart. There's just no way I can get a red camera back there. But and 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 something like a GoPro is going to give you all that weird distortion, and it shoots at 30 frames. So we we took his 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 uh, A7S2 and stuck it back there, and got all the shots he wanted. Um, and they look beautiful. They, they they integrated really well too. It was amazing. And uh, and and you know, you know, with that, you know, you shoot it in log, and you you've got a lot of range and color correction. And the other thing that I paired my camera with was Rokinon uh, uh, Cine lenses. And you know, mm -hmm. I I don't think any of them are over a thousand. I think yeah. some of them are as cheap as three hundred, and some of them are as much as seven. And I just think they're great. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm really I'm not a lens great value. I'm not a lens snob. I'm really, I'm all about, you know, what you put in front of that lens and capture. And if you capture it accurately, then it's, it's going to look nice. And, and, you know, then if you want some distortion and character, you know, you can use vintage lenses, but even like Sean said, you could get those things on eBay. Um, so I, I have a couple, I have a couple FD and even FL Canon lenses too, uh, which I've then, you know, had to adapt of course, and, and, and all that stuff. One of the fun things I got is somebody was doing a, a, a crowdfund and I don't remember which platform it was on, but they had pinhole lenses. So I've got a set of, I haven't used them yet. I want to take them for a ride. Maybe Sean will come up with something. Yeah, but those, those are cool. cool. Got these these cool look like bespoke pinhole lenses that will, you know, they're plastic. We'll definitely use that. There, there's three, I've got three different ones and I want to take them for a ride. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, when, when 
Sean and I did um, California Christmas. You know, I've worked ever since LEDs came out. You know, I've been working with LEDs and I've I've followed them from, you know, the initial ones and, you know, all the way to now you've got things like 10K Fresnels and the RGB stuff where you've got all the color and the effects. And California Christmas was the first time I used them as extensively as I did. I think almost every scene that has artificial lighting in it, both interior and exterior, has LED lights. You know, either the airy sky panel or the the Titan Asteras, um, and you know, damn, they're great. Because I mean, if you're if you're if you're going for natural light, you can get any gradation. You know, between the warm light to the cool light, and and way beyond what you really need. And um, you know, you can dial in a little bit of green or a little bit of magenta. And then for colors, you know, we've got the reds, we got the blues. Um, you know, Sean and I did a little uh, teaser recently uh, and he goes, Brad, I need you to go get some pickups to make the edit work. And, and one of the shots is a girl being chased by the cops. And I'm like, okay. And, you know, so what I did because I didn't have the Titan Asteras is I, I ran down to film tools and I bought this thing called an, uh, uh, a Nanlite Pavo Tube 6C, which was a hundred bucks. Yeah, that Nanlite brand is pretty cool. I like it, like a lot of their stuff. It's not yeah, as sophisticated yeah. as the as the Astera Titans, but it's far less expensive, and it had a bloody cop light in it, and I had two of them. Then so I put one up on the dash to put a little light on the girl's face, and then I had the cop light. And the only thing I was worried about was I don't want us to be driving down the road and somebody see this red blue flashing from inside but we found this remote <laughs> screen to do it on um but yeah those nanlite pavo tubes are just just fantastic and you know i have a bi-color um led kit that i've had you know that i bought when i got the 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 sony that is um uh i don't know like nine hundred dollars or eight hundred dollars it was a a savage was the brand but um you know again i i a, a I just bought those things because, you know, I wanted to, you know, have something to do personal projects or, or, you know, go shoot a B-roll or a pickup shot. Or, you know, if I'm on a, on a movie with Alexa's or Red's and, and I'm like, you know, I just want a little extra camera. I have, I have something that I can bring. Um, so that's why I got it. But uh, all of those tools have found their way onto much bigger shows where I'm like, you know, I'm just going to bring my bicolor LEDs as just something extra to have on the truck. Uh, so, you know, again, if I given a choice, I'd still prefer the the Titan Asteras or something similar. Um, I'd, I'd prefer the Airy Sky panels. But even with the Airy Sky panels, you know, when we did that teaser, uh, um, uh, Sean and I have a gaffer friend, Eddie Chan, who's got a whole bunch of stuff, and he very generously loaned us some Titan Asteras and a and a Airy Sky panel. But that Airy Sky panel is a boat anchor in an anvil case and it's just a son of a bitch getting it in my car and getting it getting it out and i was happy to have it and and it looked great but it's like you know wow that's i, I that's not really suited for run and gun gorilla stuff but those little nan like <laughs> that big mm -hmm. so. those are cool yeah yeah they're really cool I, I became a big fan of the tube lighting in the last several projects we've done because it's just so versatile and uh and they're also can look like something that actually is a source light or could live within the, the world in a lot of situations. And so they make great lights for like backlighting somebody um, uh, from like a source or something like that. So um, I highly recommend, yes, the, the Asteras are like the best ones. Uh, well, I mean, maybe there's even better ones, but I'm saying those are really nice, but they're not cheap. Um, but you can get some really cool tubes like those Nan lights. There's some other brands as well that they won't completely break your bank and you could still 
do some really creative lighting with them and they do different effects and they have apps to control them and all of this uh, kind of cool stuff. So, um, yeah, I've been, uh, I have some LED panels as well, but those tube lights have really uh, kind of changed the way I've thought about lighting uh, or talk about lighting stuff with Brad. Yeah, and, for sure. Uh, well, when, we, when we did the science fiction TV series a couple of years ago, Salvage Marines, you know, just on a whim, I saw these little camping lights, these, uh, those were fantastic. Yeah, and they weren't even bought truly bicolor. There was a, a tungsten mode and a daylight mode, and I think a flashing mode. And I'm just like, you know, what the hell? They're 30 bucks. I bought them. I, I showed them to Sean. I'm like, I don't know what we're going to do, but here they are. And um, <laughs> we used them in every shot. <laughs> they were so good. They looked great. What happened is we, we had this one particular shot where, where Sean was looking at it and he says, Brad, I need something else. I need, do you have a light? Do you have something you could just put in there? And, and I was like, okay. And I took a piece of like a peacock colored gel and I just put it on the lights because they're not, they're not RGB, but I, I put the gel on it and I just stuck it in there. And he's like, oh my God, it's perfect. And he loved it so much that he kept asking me for it. Brad, put, where are those lights? Put those lights in, you know? So, so they're all over the, the bloody movie and they're, you know, they're only 30 bucks. They're, they're just camping lights that you can buy on Amazon so and I'm trying to remember I think like so obviously they're a little too but I think if you turn them you know uh, uh, right at the camera it was also a flashlight that way right because it would create these really bitchin flares too on because we shot that on um, what were those anamorphics were they cows as well or they weren't cows hawks yeah so hawk anamorphics and that that camping light, when you would put it like a kind of flashlight mode, it would create these really awesome lens flares, like insides of spaceships and things like this, where you want to see that kind of J.J. Uh, 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 Abrams vibe, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just little $30 camping lights. We used we used the crap out of those. I mean, those were like the, the little heroes of the uh, uh, little MVPs of the science fiction shoot. Yeah, that's... Uh honestly fantastic like you guys went super deep into a lot of that equipment stuff and Love i know yeah. every listener is just going to be blown away with all that information um we are getting to the point that we'd like to wrap it up uh for time's sake but honestly, you guys have been so fantastic and we would yeah. love to have you guys on again or even just individually. I guarantee you, you guys can just go on and on about your profession <laughs> specifically. So we'd love to have, <laughs> to, to have you back on and we can talk about that later. But to finish up and with this last question, I know our listeners would, would hate it if I, if I don't at least get this question in. Um, you guys are professionals in the industry you have just created a netflix original something that most indie filmmakers would hope to one day dream and get to that point um as your last seen advice how, do, how what kind of advice would you give them to get to that point where they could one day work on a netflix film like you guys um well i mean there's again it's one of those things there's no necessarily one right answer to it. Of course, it's, it's all about relationship building. So when people, you know, you hear the cliche thing about Hollywood, it's who, you know, I mean, that's very accurate. It is who, you know, because it's who you build relationships with over the years. And anytime you see an overnight success, it's usually 10 to 20 years in the making. Um, and it's, it's about building those relationships. And, and that only comes through creating, whether that's, you going on to a project or that's you creating the project yourself. That's how you build relationships. Um, so I tell people, you know, create, create stuff. Even if it's a YouTube video, if it's a TikTok video, it doesn't matter. Create something, 
but take time to try and make it something of quality, you know, write a little script, do a little thing, uh, and, and, uh, link up with some like-minded people and create stuff because you're going to build relationships. You're going to meet people even like you guys doing this, the, the podcast. Now you're meeting us and I'm sure you've met other professionals, you know, and, and that's, that's how you get to know people. And, and, uh, um, so it's really about those relationships for, for, uh, certainly ourselves, we, we, uh, met each other, worked together. And then our network of filmmaking families that we, uh, and it took years for, for, uh, Brad to, for me to be able to bring Brad into that world of, uh, ESX entertainment, who is the, the production team behind California Christmas. So I had done four movies with them prior to California Christmas. So this was my fifth movie with them, but it's the first one Brad's worked on. And so it was, um, it was one of those things like he knew me, I knew him, and we are constantly trying to help each other, get each other jobs whenever it's possible. And so it's that kind of thing. And we enjoy working with each other. And But um, it was years in the making to have Brad work on a, a film with that same team that I had done all these other movies with. So um, and then in, in hindsight there, it was that team that I had worked with. I've gone above and beyond. I always work my tail off for them. They're all wonderful people. Um, and that's what uh, allotted me the opportunity to do as many movies as I have with them. Um, and, uh, and the relationship with, um, the, uh, uh, um, you know, head of that company of ESX is Ali Afshar. And obviously we've, we've gained friendship and we, we honestly, we're like family at this point and his relationships with, with Warner brothers and, uh, uh, and through, through Warner brothers, also Netflix is how those deals came to pass. So it's not like there was some kind of formula of, look, this is the movie we're going to make and it's going to somehow luckily get onto Netflix. And, you know, it's really about kind of years of work. And I know that's not like the easy answer or, or the answer that probably most people would want, but it's, uh, I say you got to create, get your, make yourself short films, make yourself features, go into film festivals, go into every film festival you can possibly go if you're doing a short film or something, you know, in that realm, because you're going to meet new people. And I did it for years. I went into film festivals and I met so many wonderful people. I met people that I have worked with on other projects. I've met producers, I've met uh, casting directors, I've met, you know, just actors, um, all of it. And, uh, um, that's kind of what led me to this path of, of working with the people that I did. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, and, and trying to do quality work, obviously, um, you know, always try and elevate your project in, in whichever way you can do that creatively, uh, not talking about money. I'm just talking about, you know, put in that extra time and effort and, um, you know, I've, I've done posts on a lot of my projects and it's, I always try and explain to people, it's like a sculpture in any project, in any script, any, any filming. And then in the, in the editing, you always kind of start off with a square block or this big lump of clay or whatever you want to imagine. And you start chipping away at it. You start shaping it like, Oh, now it's starting to look like a person. Okay. And then you might get really satisfied. That looks like, Oh, that person looks, you know, that looks pretty realistic, but then there's still more layers to go. Now you've got to, before you're going to get that, you know, uh, Michelangelo's David or whatever. I'm not saying any of our movies are that level of art, but you know what I'm trying to say is it starts off this big blocky thing and the layers that you strip away at it and, and polish and refine is how you get to that, um, that end result that is hopefully, um, 
you know, uh, always striving to make it above average, you know, to try and elevate it to that next level. And that part of that is also not being satisfied um, too easily or giving up too easily on, on something, you know, maybe it's too hard. I don't, uh, I'm going to be done with this project. Like, um, you know, but also don't obsess the other way. <laughs> I know some filmmakers who will never finish the project because they're so obsessed with perfection. Then that's also a, a, another kind of Achilles heel. You've, you've also got to be able to let go of the project at some point, but try and get it to that elevated, um, uh, level of quality. So, yeah, I would say um, always bear in mind that the success is about preparation meeting opportunity. Um, and we don't have that much control over opportunity, you know, um, maybe you do a little or, or, or not, but, but you have a lot of control over preparation. And one of the things that I see in common with successful people uh, in all fields, but especially in filmmaking, um, you know, Sean is an example is that they are typically overachievers. Um, you know, if you saw the bullet points of Chan's qualifications, uh, he is an experienced and excellent stunt performer, uh, stunt choreographer, actor, visual effects artist, editor. Um, you know, he's just, he's just an amazing person. And it's not because, um, you know, it's not because he's trying to prove anything. He just has this insatiable, curiosity to explore those different modes of expression and and you have to have that passion and follow that muse but but truly i think it's universal in people who are successful uh good enough is never good enough and and if you're satisfied with being average i, I don't think you're ever going to be doing a netflix original um that's a you know and and if that's you know that's the way you want to be that's your choice but uh it's a very competitive business and you have to push yourself you have to be extra you have to and you have to be an individual you can't be a clone you can't um you know have you have to have a signature um just some of those things that sean was saying you know where he singled me out and said oh you know brad does this and i've never seen anybody else do that and i don't say that to pat myself on my back i mean i could say that about sean and sean could say that about lauren or ali i mean it, it's just a it's just a thing is you, you have to have you know it, it, it's, you know, be indispensable, be that person that they just say, well, we can't do without that person because, you know, they bring this special thing that is not generic. Nobody else brings it, you know, so, so develop that in yourself, develop that in your work, you know, look, you know, uh, I wrote this essay recently about, you know, something I learned as an artist of, of, you know, looking from unusual perspectives and, and trying to see beyond assumptions and 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 see what you're actually looking at um you know let the world around you teach you don't don't um, it's just like having a conversation with somebody if you talk too much you're never gonna learn what they have to say you know be quiet and listen um and then apply and experiment um so you know again that's your preparation and and obviously like what sean says is is do it you know i somebody once told me you know what does a director do and and the answer is you know everybody thinks oh well you know they guide the performances and you know they they they, they craft the, the the identity of the film and those are only partial answers because what a director does is a director directs and so many people miss that they they have the business cards and they have the website and they're waiting for the phone call don't wait for the phone call pick if you have nothing else pick up your phone and you know shoot every weekend all the time you have off if if because you are not going to be excellent 
if you if you are a hobbyist you know there there's something to the like uh, to be an expert is what like 10,000 hours or 30,000 hours you, you can google it but but you you don't get good by wishing and you don't get good by posturing and you don't get good just because you have a business card and a website you have to do the work you, if you are want to be a director then then Absolutely. if you're not directing you're not a director and you know there's this same saying in martial arts i i also come from a martial art background, they say to master this punch, you must throw it 10,000 times or to master this kick. It's, it's a universal thing. And I think that mindset is, is definitely, I say all the time, the people that make it in this business are the ones that stick it out. And I mean that in not that they don't just hang around. It's the ones they're putting in the work. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people try and get into this business and they leave after two years because it's really a difficult business, but just one one party thing to leave you guys with is is you know my first two feature films uh, we shot in back alleys of our apartment buildings and we spent uh, I think the first movie we spent around ten thousand dollars and it was a group of like ten of us that all put in credit card money you know and just made it happen um, we ended up getting worldwide distribution on that film we never dreamed we'd get distribution we just made it to make it. And by the way, we wrote the script in a week. We shot the first draft. We didn't, it, it wasn't about excellence at that point. It was actually more of an exercise of, we want to, we want to make all the mistakes of, of that we are, would make making a film. Let this be our grand experiment and let us figure this thing out. It was our school. It was our, uh, it was our film school. We didn't go to film school. So that was kind of what we did. And then the second feature I, I directed, we made on $7,000 and it was kind of a, it was shot on the first, the red one. And, um, you know, it was just passion project for everybody involved. And we all put in our blood, sweat and tears. Um, uh, lovely people at uh, Hectic Films partnered with me and we just decided to make this act. And it was an action film, which is extremely difficult with no money. Um, but, we, uh, you know, we just decided we were going to do it and we did it. And we took inspiration from Robert Rodriguez, uh, with El Mariachi. And we said he did it 20 years prior to us for 7,000. We're going to do it 20 years later for 7,000. And that's what we did. I think we were like 7,200 or something like that, but because of all the Del Taco, um, that we had to provide for, for everybody. But, um, you know, and we, we just weekend warriored that film. We, we, uh, you know, a day here, a day there is how we would shoot the film. And, and, uh, um, so, you know, the only reason I talk about that is not to brag or anything like that, but we did, we, we took that movie to film festivals across the country. Anyone that would accept us, anyone that would have us, we would, we would take it there. And, and, uh, we ended up did winning a bunch of awards for it. And that kind of became a calling card for a lot of us, but we made that on $7,000. So, you know, uh, and we just did it. There was nobody telling us that we were going to get work out of it. There was nobody telling us, you know, this is a good, smart idea to go do this and try this. And we just, we, we knew that nobody's going to give us a feature film to direct. So, uh, or produce or create. And so we decided we were going to do it ourselves. And, and, uh, and we, where there's a will, there's a way. And we all just pooled money together until we could, you know, um, uh, make it happen. And I was, I was working, I was, a uh, working at a gym at the time, um, and, uh, just saving every penny I had and, and, uh, and putting it into that stuff. And, and, uh, and they all leads to work. Work always leads to work. Doesn't matter if it's a short, doesn't matter if it's a YouTube video. Um, I actually had some level of success and I still went back to making YouTube shorts because I wasn't working enough 
uh, and consistent enough and getting phone calls enough. And so I found that as a creative outlet. And, and every time I'd create a new YouTube video, and of course, we're always trying to produce them at a higher level. Um, and, uh, but every time I'd create one, phones would ring. Oh my gosh, that was a funny video you did and blah, blah, blah. And because people see that you're doing something, people see that you're working with people. And then we'd have different actors and different new people coming along and then they would promote it. And all of a sudden that network and that, that, uh, it starts to grow and expand. And then you meet new people that way and, 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 uh, um, build those relationships and, and get more work. It's important to remember that nobody starts at the top. So, so no, you know, Roger Deakins and, 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 uh, Steven Spielberg and George Clooney, um, you know, no matter where you are in your career right now, one day those guys were you, you know, I mean, there was a time when they were just dreamers with nothing to show. And um, I say that for a couple of reasons. One is we all make mistakes on, on the way. And, and one of the reasons to do so much work early on is get those mistakes out of your system you're going to make them and it's okay. And, and let yourself off the hook because if you're smart, you'll learn from them and it'll make you a better filmmaker and make you a better person. Um, so do it, make, you know, take chances, uh, you know, make your mistakes, get them out of your system. And the other reason I, I point that out is because it's important to have mentors, you know, find people who do what you do, who are professional and experienced and reach out to them. You know, you can, you can find people. I mean, you're not going to find Spielberg, Deacons, and Clooney's email addresses, but you may find some indie filmmakers' uh, email addresses on IMDb Pro or LinkedIn. Even DGA has a public search engine, and 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 you'd be surprised at some of the people who you can find if you put your mind to it. And also, you know, put the word out to people you know. Say, hey, does anybody know how to get to this person? You know, again, you have to do more than average. You, everybody's doing average. Everybody's doing this much. You have to do that much. Um, you have to go the extra mile. Don't get stopped. Um, find a way around and, and, you know, get the mentors and ask people. And again, don't be afraid to ask. A lot of folks think, oh, you know, I don't want to bother them. But remember, once upon a time, they were you and anybody with some character and conscience, unless they're just slammed and then they'll be honest. But, you know, they're going to listen. They're not going to be an asshole to you. And, and maybe, maybe they have time. Maybe they have the ability to take on uh, a mentee. So, so ask for those things. And the second thing that I would point out is networking. So you've got the preparation and then being an excellent filmmaker is nothing if you don't know people, you have to know people. And uh, the one thing most people get wrong about networking is they think it's all about asking for stuff. It's all about what can that guy do for me? What can this person do for me? What can this you know, lady over here, you know, how, how can she make me better? That's the wrong approach. You need to approach from a sense of generosity. And what I mean by that is, is First of all, do your due diligence. Check these people out on social media, Google them, read articles about them. Find out beyond filmmaking, oh, they like you know schnauzers or this person's a cat person. Uh, this person likes boats. This person is a fan of the Baltimore Orioles. This person went to that college and, and find out where your connections are and engage them on those levels. Everybody all day long is you know talking film, 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 read my script, give me a job that gets old, but you know what, if you, if you call them up and you say, wow, you have such a beautiful uh, Appaloosa and, and I grew up on a, on a farm, you know, doing a, a, a dressage with horses. Now you have a conversation that is unique and special and they're going to want to engage. Mm -hmm. This is a business about friendship. Mm -hmm. 
And you can always make the analogy of dating. You know, you don't go out on a date and say, you know, right off the bat, hey, can I kiss you? Will you sleep with me? No, it's like it's like, oh, you know, what a beautiful necklace. And and, um, you know, I, I saw you went camping last weekend and oh, I went camping here. So just again, th think of like, how do you bond with people as a human being? And and again, listen more than you talk. You know, because it, when I say when I say it's an approach of generosity is as people talk, you begin to hear what they need. What are they lacking? What you know, what are their dreams? And and so and it may not even be about you. You know, it may not be like, oh, hey, I can do that for you. But they start talking and they're like, oh, you know, I need a new roof on my house. And you're like, oh, hey, you know, we just had our house roof done. And and here's that person. Or they're like, you know, my editor is is, is just not that good. And you have an editor buddy. So, so sometimes it's just like you've helped this person out, you've hooked them up, you become valuable to them, you become a friend. And it's from a place of sincerity. If you do it cynically, they're going to see right through it. But you have to be a good hearted person and build a relationship where you bring value. You know, do you have those friends who every time they call you, it's can you loan me money? Can you give me a ride? And of course, you want to do that a little bit. But if that relationship is completely a one way street, it's going to get old really fast. So keep that in mind with networking. And then the final piece of it is take risks. You know, uh, if you are always on set doing things where you're like, I got this, I'm comfortable, it's chill. You are not where you need to be. You are not growing. You are not, you're not going to move forward. You need to take on jobs and, and do things where you're like, you know, I may fuck this up and really embarrass myself um, and I'm nervous. And, and that's not, I don't mean do stuff that's unsafe and stupid, but stretch go go beyond your comfort and like sean said surround yourself with a team that's got your back always have people like you know if, if you're a director you know have an ad who is knows more about ading than you do and have an editor that's a better editor than you are you know i always like to say if, if i'm on a set and i fall dead my team is experienced enough that they are going to finish that film on time and on budget and it's going to look great so so if you have a team like that it's okay to take the risks. You should always on a show have some days where you're like, boy, I am super nervous about today. Just like I said, <laughs> with the bar in the barn, you know, that's where growth comes in. Those are the moments where you will become a better filmmaker. So, so that's my, my recipe for success. If you do those things, then, then it's just a matter of the right opportunity coming to you. I just want to say the amount of insightful information and, and just everything you've said today has been, has amazed me. Um, and I know we've talked a lot about um, like California Christmas specifically and, and kind of gear and stuff. And we would definitely love to have you guys on separately to kind of talk about like your history and, and everything that you guys have done personally. So thank you guys very, very much for uh, being with us today. And uh, those lasting words were really awesome. So, yeah. Thank you so much for having us on. And yeah, I, I'm I obviously can't speak for Brad, but I'm sure he'll be glad to come on again. And uh and I, as well as I. So anytime you want us together individually, it's all good. Um, we'd love to stop by. I'm super happy to, to talk to you and, you know, tell you about my history. And I'm, you know, I, I'm an active mentor. I have mentorship groups of, of young people. And so, uh, you know, I, I really believe in, in giving back and paying it forward. You know, none of us get to where we are on our own, you know, and um, mm -hmm. absolutely, uh, you know, absolutely. Sean and I never would have met if it weren't for other people um, you know, believing in us and, and, and thinking that we should meet. 
Um, you know, always, always treat people nicely, be, be a good person. Even, even if somebody's a dick to you, you know, uh, I don't think there's any value in being a dick back. Just don't ever work with them again. You know? Um, yeah. Yeah. The one, one of my mentors, uh, literal lessons to me was don't be a dick. <laughs> That's, that was, that was his thing. He said about this business, don't be a dick because it's a small enough business. You'll have to work with those people again, or you will cross paths with them again. So just don't be a dick. Uh, which is pretty funny. Yeah, and where it gets around. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And no, uh, Noel Vega, we should shout out Noel Vega because he is uh, one of my mentors and he's also a lovely friend and awesome producer, stunt coordinator, all of that. And he is who introduced uh, uh, Brad and I uh, originally and so and said that we should work together. So uh, love you, Noel. Ah, Noel's on. <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah, call me anytime. Yeah, you we can, you know, we can do a, we can do a deep dive into a niche topic or, or whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, no, specifically, yeah, I mean, for for you, Brad, specifically, cinematography. Uh, a lot of the filmmakers and indie filmmakers that would listen to this podcast, they are 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 kind of like Sean, where they have a, a boatload of different things that they're into. But I know every single one of them uh, has a cinematography field at heart and I guarantee you Brad you'd be able to help people so much uh, as well as you Sean I've, I've constantly get a lot of people to talk about directing and have a lot a lot of just different questions um, and so uh, we would love to just go dive deep into your specific field and profession uh, and especially history I know we focused a little bit on the California Christmas specifically for this one which is fantastic um, and I know a lot of people hopefully who watched it would love to to hear the little background stories behind it um, but la last thing that I'd say is, you know, like I 100% agree with you, Brad, when it comes to networking, it's not about trying to get them to, you know, do you a favor or, or to get you a job or get you into that industry. Uh, I'm 100% a believer that when you network with somebody, you're trying to be friends with them, you're trying to um, get to know them and, and and build that bond and so that's that's why we do these podcasts is not we're not looking for people to come on and say hey come to us and we'll give you a job we're we're here for education we're here so that mm -hmm. way people can can network and and learn and grow together versus everybody just trying to do everybody favors so sweet well that was fantastic you guys it, incredible i had a thousand brand new questions yeah. that I could have asked. And I know you guys are like, you should have kept going. Unfortunately, there's just time limits. You know, they are super busy and mm -hmm. we didn't want to keep, you know, that was already two hours that mm -hmm. are probably going to get cut down to, you know, uh, an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> I mean, it was an hour and 45 as it was. And, and there was so much good stuff there. I don't, I don't know if I can cut any of it out, you know, and like, I, I think that's a good thing, you know, and I think, Again, like this is what we're trying to portray to our audience um, and all the new filmmakers and, and what to do, how to get started and, and, and guerrilla filmmaking. And they just nailed it on the head. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, they went so deep into it. And I mean, the, not only that, but like they went deep and showed you examples from uh, California Christmas yeah. as well. So, you know, go watch the film. Yeah, Listen do. to this it's podcast. Then go watch the film again, yeah. At knowing all of the things that you were told mm -hmm. in the podcast, um, it, it it was mind boggling, and I guarantee you guys we are gonna have them back on the show, yeah, individually. So that way, those of you who wanted to listen to Brad for cinematography purposes will have actually Jasper, our cinematographer, interview him, 
And then for those of you who are more in the directing side of things, we'll have Sean on the show uh, and I will get to interview him. But as well as, you know, they were telling us that they could potentially hook us up with an interview with the main characters from the show. And so hopefully those of you who are listening and all the way to this part, go ahead and share it. So that way and and comment like, hey, we want to hear from the main characters. So those main those main cast members who. Uh, are also super busy uh, find the time to come on our show so. yeah and you see this this is this is how it happens and we'll dive more into this as we discuss but as they were talking about it as we've talked about in the past building those connections yeah bu- building those human connections you know and, and talking to them um, and getting to know them on a personal level um, and now we've gotten in with both them and and the main cast and or hopefully the main cast eventually but but yeah that's that's the point yeah and, and I mean the, the thing guys is like we didn't reach out to Sean and Brad because we wanted to get a gig and work with Netflix. Like yeah. we don't care. Obviously we want to get there our way somehow and we want to show Brad and Sean our work. So that way one day they can say, you know what? I saw what these guys did. We'd love to recommend them, but that's not what this is for. This yeah. is for you guys to learn for us to learn and mm-hmm. get educated uh, from professionals and experts. And so that's what I love about this. And with this one interview potentially could lead to the podcast blowing up a little bit, yeah. you know, with, with potentially interviews from some of the cast members who have a larger following. Um, and, and that just, when, when it blows up, it just means that, other actors, directors, filmmakers will get to learn from professionals uh, at a at a you know indie sort of level, and and will go yeah. deep into their beginnings and their roots, um, versus just like well tell us about your big budget film. Like yeah. this is what I mean. This particular episode was more about that big budget film style. I know towards the end we really got into that indie filmmaking stuff, mm-hmm. and they were able to answer a lot of those questions. But those individual uh, interviews will definitely really focus on the smaller end of things yeah. uh, and how they were able to grow to where they were. So, and like you said, like we we saw the film and we saw how amazing it was and we wanted to reach out to them. And I think it was you that reached out to them, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And like, I, what did you say when you reached out to them? Well, what I, I actually, in one of the filmmaking groups, I actually saw Brad. He was posting about the film and saying hey we just created this netflix original Uh, i was a cinematographer on it and it's now number one in the world and i was like shit we need to have this guy on our podcast Mm -hmm. and so i reached out to him and brad was super interested and not only that but then he was like hey would you like to have the director on with me Mm -hmm. and so just like that we were able to get sean through brad uh through a facebook group and yeah. so that was that was fantastic. So and so our mindset going into it wasn't like, oh, we're gonna meet these these big people and and maybe we're gonna we're gonna get an in and like no, it's not about that. It's about we want to bring this on the bring them on this podcast for you guys uh, to learn from them because they had this amazing film that was in the let's see they said top five in the world. He was, he was he was number one in the world for like several days and then by the end of 2020, which was only out for like two weeks they ended yeah. up being the number 13 most popular movie 
uh, in the world of the of, year, of the year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if the, if I mean, obviously they had the Christmas sort of bash with it, but you know, think about if they had just an extra few weeks, maybe they could have pushed that thirteen up to yeah. in the top ten. See, that can apply to any genre. You know, like yes, it's a Christmas film, and Christmas is very popular. People are going to watch a lot of Christmas films, and and it's a Netflix uh, original, and so it's going to get that attention. But still, like it's pushing that pushing a specific genre um and and having the it's an amazing film as it is and then um having that communication having that networking um and and having that marketing is what pushed it to the top yeah yeah so i mean it's possible for everybody but i mean there are once in a while there are films that are able to do well outside of their specific season like mm-hmm. uh I, I don't know a little film called die hard um which, <laughs> never heard of it which was supposed to be a christmas film i mean at, the setting was christmas time but but if i if i'm correct believing that it was actually launched in this in summertime like the film was published in the summertime and so is this christmas movie uh and yet it's one of the most popular most quoted movies of all time mm-hmm. um with uh bruce willis and um what's what's the guy's name from harry potter snape gosh mm-hmm. this is so unprofessional of me <laughs> um uh, alan rickman there we go okay yeah as hans gruber um fantastic film definitely you know could have maybe done better during winter but it doesn't matter it's still super successful in the summer mm-hmm. Uh, and that's all due to the storytelling, to the acting. There's everything that goes into it to make it uh, an amazing film. So, One quick off-topic question. Do you consider Nightmare Before Christmas a Halloween film or a Christmas film? Shit. Um, I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be kind of more of a Christmas theme. Because it's kind of like Halloween characters upset that Christmas is more popular. Mm-hmm. And so it's like setting in Christmas. It's kind of like a The Grinch, where mm-hmm. it's just like, you know, Jack is trying to steal Christmas away. Yeah. And so I, I, I think you'd watch it in both seasons. I think that's yeah. what makes it fantastic. Yeah. Um, Such a unique film in that way. But if I was gonna say, I would say it might be more popular. My guess would be it's more popular during Christmas time. Yeah. That's fair. I could be wrong. I don't it's know. interesting hearing uh, other people or uh, yeah, a lot of other people's perspective on that because I personally think of it as like more a little bit more of a Halloween film just because it really focuses and focuses in on um, and, and all the characters and all the setting is very uh, creepy and. Well, and... but we could probably go into Google Trends <laughs> and just type in you know uh, the film and see whether it performs better near October or near yeah, December. That's fair. And we'll see who's right. But to get back on track, um, what did you want to focus in on today? You know, what did you want to discuss about? Yeah, I mean, there was so many amazing things that we could talk about. Um, But because I do believe our our audience is going to be mainly people who aren't professionals and are wanting to learn and and grow and become professionals, I really want to focus on on, on two small little factors. that that were more towards the end of the podcast um you know one of them being we almost every single episode we've done has talked about some sort of networking in one way or another yeah that is 
a central a theme in, in in the entertainment industry. And when people say it's 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 a people business, that's a hundred percent correct. And we're not in Hollywood. Yeah, like we've just we've just realized just how how important it is to network and connect with people. Mm -hmm. And we're in Omaha, Nebraska, of all places, the worst place to to get any start in a in a film career. Um, and like, I mean, through meeting you guys through Dissolve, with Dissolve Media and um, and we've said it before that we we just met last uh, last year and over the summer we're like yeah let's make a production company you know and and we're, it's a people business and so working with you guys uh, we've got this started and we've got such a good ground and we've met all these cool people and it's just growing and that's so, that's so cool to see well I mean do you think if we hadn't started this and we hadn't met up that you would be doing this right now do you think you'd have met these people do you think that you would know what you know today or potentially have the opportunities that you you have today do you think you'd have those same opportunities I don't I think that this um I think that doing all of this has been just part of my journey with uh, doing um, my passion in my career. Because as you as you are a filmmaker, you keep growing and you keep getting these opportunities. And I think this is absolutely one of them. Um, and I, I don't think that I would be in the position that I am today uh, without having met you guys. The same, same. Honestly, I have no idea what I would be I would be doing if I didn't have to feel like the, I was doing a responsibility here with, with Dissolve Media, and, mm -hmm. and I enjoy it, and I know that um, we're bootstrapping it. We could probably go out there and and get a whole bunch of credit card debt and, and get loans, but, you know, and, and that's something that has made people successful before they've started that mm -hmm. way, is gone super far into debt and because they were so passionate about what they did, but there's plenty of people that were unsuccessful with it, and I think for the time being, we're not really willing to risk that um, until we know for a fact we're gun ho about it. Yeah. Um, and, and I know, I, I know we are, we're, we're thinking about moving towards the West coast altogether. And mm -hmm. we've only known each other since last summer. Yeah. Uh, and now we're wanting to potentially be roommates together, but that's, that's how this industry works Yeah. is you meet people that are like-minded and, and want the same things out of life. Uh, and all of a sudden you become really good friends, coworkers, yeah. um, associates, and family members and so that's why i always encourage people you know if you are in an area where filmmaking isn't a big thing isn't a, a central hub of of that area like omaha nebraska you know reach out and meet like-minded people mm -hmm. right the and only people... way you're going to grow you can't grow yourself you have to have other people to help grow with you. Yeah. And find people to, to help you in areas that fill in your uh, gap of expertise, right? So yeah. so I, I'm a cinematographer and like you are the CEO of Dissolve Media and like without you, I don't have all of the awesome uh, business ideas and money management and all of that that you have. And so I'm very appreciative for that, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, the one thing I'd say is like coming into this, like I personally feel like I've tried to practice and get better at everything when it comes down to filmmaking and the editing portion of the color grading graphic design you know motion graphics directing acting the one thing that i can't seem to really do and do well is be behind the camera i don't know what it is i just i just cannot seem to be really good at behind the camera stuff and that is my biggest weakness and i and i hope to learn so much from you jasper because i i i can't tell you how bad I actually am behind uh, camera when it comes to video. I could take decent photos and I could do photography, but videography is just 
that's where you come in. And like, if we didn't have you, um, Dissolve Media wouldn't exist because you do have most of the equipment. So <laughs> that's kind of what I, what I wanted to go into today as well is is like gorilla and low budget uh, equipment. Um, but we'll get there. So you said you wanted to talk about like uh, marketing and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So go on about that. Yeah. So one thing that I loved what Brad said was you have to find what it is that you are good at, what it is that you can bring to the table that nobody else is going to bring. That is super important. Yeah. That uniqueness quality that when somebody looks at you, they could recognize you because they know that you have that ability or, or that thing that makes you unique to who you are. If you are just general, you do the same thing, you just learn from and you follow sort of formula or rhythm, you're not going to go anywhere because everybody's done that formula in rhythm. And it's so scary to be on um, new bigger projects that you haven't been on before and you're totally going to be out of your comfort zone. This is really going off what what Brad said, um, but that's what pushes you and that's what makes you learn and having, uh, again, like meeting you guys and, and being part of this production team together, um, meeting people that, that can help you uh, and work with you and having a crew that can carry the thing, mm-hmm. the whole thing if you weren't there is huge but yeah yeah just filling in those different areas of expertise yeah i and and that's super super important um you know just because when you start experimenting with whatever it is that your field is whether that is acting directing cinematography as we talked with last week's episode with brian is that niche as a cinematographer in that case his niche was uh, adventure filmmaking, yeah. you could have a niche as an actor, right? Maybe you are only really good at playing jocks or football sure. players, yeah. or, or you are really good at playing the monster or bad guy or whatever it is, mm-hmm. right? I know that Kevin Caliber even talked about uh, like he gets casted because he gets typecasted uh, for like jocks and douches and exactly um, and military people all the time because he looks like that and that's he loves to fill and those the, roles and, and the and you have to find that niche because that's how you're going to market yourself and, and that's how you're going to grow eventually though once you break a certain barrier you no longer have to do those certain roles you could start trying out different roles i mean it doesn't mean that people are going to necessarily like you in those particular roles but you know look at somebody like you know let's see examples of people who have tried uh, you know adam sandler he's mainly a comedic actor Mm -hmm. and then he did uncut gems yeah very dramatic i was very surprised with his i was surprised with his role in that in the first place like seeing the trailers before it came out uh and then how well he actually portrayed that character was really cool exactly and and it's just at that point he knew that the only thing that was going to make him grow from you know 20 years ago was comedy right he didn't do i don't you know i don't know his background but i don't believe he did anything serious other than just comedy mm-hmm. for all of his life until this point when everybody knew his name mm-hmm. and he wanted to try something different. And so, yeah, it sucks. It sucks that you can't just constantly experiment and do everything because there's just so much that can be done. And if you try to do everything, you're just not going to be successful, right? That's mm-hmm. that $10,000, $10,000 hour yeah. expert sort of thing. And you have to put in 10,000 hours into your specific niche. Adam Sandler did it with comedy. He became well known for it. That's what people mm-hmm. loved him for it. Mm-hmm. He he grew and now that he's popular, he's like, "You know what? 
now I have the ability to go and try something different because yeah. I don't need to make it. I've already made it. And I think it's smart to to follow the opportunities that you have and, and, and jump on any opportunity. But as a general rule of thumb, follow what you are naturally good at, you know, um, and what you may be as an actor typecasted for or as a director, uh, what like you're really good at. Um, uh, dramas, so you do that, uh, and then grow on that. You know, once you have the the expertise in that area, you can be like, okay, well, I'm not learning a ton from uh, directing dramas anymore, so now maybe I want to do a comedy. You know, maybe I have a friend who has a good script, or I wrote a good script, something like that. You know, mm -hmm. um, so like focusing in on that area, and then kind of diversify after that. But again, take all the opportunities that you can get. Exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, just just like just to summarize, right? Find your niche in what field you're working at, right? Whether you're a cinematographer, how can you distinguish yourself as a cinematographer? How could you distinguish yourself as a director? If you went into a room into Netflix and they said, "What could you bring us that we haven't seen before?" You should have that answer at the top of your head. Yeah. You should be able to tell them, "This is what I can bring to you that you're not going to get from anybody else." Mhm. Mm and it's going to be the littlest thing ever, but that's going to be super important. And I think that's even kind of like a a underlooked value of like a normal job interview with anything is like, they always ask that question, what can you bring to us that is unique? You know, and it's it's easy to answer that question for like a customer service position, but that is something you really have to focus on in this field is what can you bring to us that is unique? Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and to go for, and to then expand into the second thing that, um, Brad was going into. And, and we have on this podcast have already talked about how to properly network. And when it comes to properly network in short, you are not there to get something out of it, right? Mm -hmm. You are there to build a relationship. Networking is not set on favors and and hoping that because you met somebody that they're going to give you a job. Networking is solely based off of the fact that you are going to build a relationship, a rapport with somebody that over the time, over years, like it was with Brad and Sean, you will get to know somebody for who they are, right? Their family, what their interests are, what they care about, you know, what they're good at. They'll get to see what you're good at and then eventually get to a point where you know, an opportunity comes and they're like, hey, you know, for a huge example, um, when we did this wedding in December, when the bride was all like, do you know any DJs? And I, I messaged you guys in the group and uh, Bassi said he knew Pierre, mm -hmm. right? And just an like awesome that, DJ. just like that, yeah. Pierre had no idea that this was a thing that was happening. Yeah. But because we knew him, we were able to recommend him to the bride and he got that gig yeah. and he got paid for it. Yeah. And it's because he's an awesome person that has worked with mm -hmm. um, Bassi in the past. And like, you know, if, if you're a dick, you're not going to get there. I, I think it's Im important to recognize that the feelings of getting something out of meeting new people that are bigger than you uh, is natural, you know, and and valid. Because again, like you're going to be starstruck meeting, meeting awesome big uh, producers and whatever, but... And something, yeah, may may come out of it, and that, that's really cool. But the epitome of it is that you are trying to connect with these people as humans, you know? Like, they have the same or similar passions as you, you know? And so that says a lot about, like, your similarities and in, in characteristics. And so I I think it's not that you shouldn't demonize the idea of of kind of wanting something out of talking to these people. But, but again, it's, it's getting to know them as a person, you know, and yeah. as a friend. 
it, it just what we're saying is that it's not that you're not going to eventually ask for something. It's that it takes time. You're not going to do it when you first meet them. You're not going to go no. to them and say, hey, uh, my name is, you know, so and so. And I would love and I have this script. Would you read it and potentially, you yeah. know, find financing for it? Brad you're not doing that. Get that all the time. And so it's boring and repetitive. Exactly. Yeah. You're going to meet them. You're going to get to, you know, get to know them. You're going to take them out to dinner. Not once, not twice, several times. And, and eventually you've got this friendship and, you know, it's not that you're going to be best friends, but just enough that you've got. <laughs> the next time someone asks us, be like, hey, can you produce our script? Just be like, can you take me to dinner first? Yeah, I, I want <laughs> food. Uh, but just anyway, just enough for you to then have this sort of friendship that you can ask for a favor and just be like, hey, uh, I've got this script that I would love to have somebody professional read it and take a look at it. Yeah. Do you do you have anybody or would you be able to look at it? And all of a sudden they're like, you haven't done any, you know, you haven't asked for any favors. You've gotten to know me personally, right? You, you're a really good person. I've seen your work before. Uh, of course, I'm going to look at this. I'm going to send it off to the three producers that I've worked before. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and just like that, by just taking time and not rushing it and being patient, Mm -hmm. Right. Even if that means while you're waiting and being patient, you're bartending. Uh, and like Sean said, he's worked in so many different things before he got into filmmaking. Yeah. Um, that's what it takes. And if you're not it willing to lot. do that, this is not the industry for you. That's actually exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> like if you're not into it for the, the long haul and if you're not a person that believes it's all about the journey, which is so cliche, but so fucking true. You're in the wrong <laughs> industry. You know, if you're, if you're here to, to meet big people and make big money. You know, go to fucking business law school, cryptocurrency. Like, yeah, yeah you're you talk talking. Th to this artists. is an art business. So, the question becomes, and what we are going to talk about for networking in this specific uh, episode is, where do you network? And I know that Brad and Sean mentioned a couple of different places, so we want to reiterate those places. If you're in the filmmaking industry, IBM, uh, IM, IMDB Pro mm -hmm. is super helpful. I have had it. Yes, it's a little bit pricey per month. I do think that they have an annual, uh, anal, mm -hmm. uh, annual um, membership that you can have. But that is super helpful. A lot of producers, directors, actors, they put their emails and, and contact information and their agent information in that on IMDb Pro, and you can literally reach out to professionals across the industry and in Hollywood Yeah, and, and start building those relationships. And, and, and even just, I definitely think email should be priority number one. People tend to respond to emails. It seems to be a little bit more professional than just to tweet them and say, hey, come talk to me. Yeah. Um, if you can find I've almost never gotten a response from Instagram and tweets and uh, from emails, it's a lot more uh, consistent. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so IMD Pro is going to be huge for that. Now, obviously, those bigger stars, they're not going to put their public information out there. Eventually, though, as you grow, you will actually get to meet those people and you'll they'll personally give you their information. So that mm -hmm. way you can network and build with them. So I actually, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't know a ton about IMDb Pro itself. Um, so other than like having the uh, information of um, these producers, directors, actors, whatever uh, on there, what what other 
and not as a sponsor at all, but uh, like what other benefits does that have? Yeah, so IMDb Pro kind of is super fascinating. We're definitely going to create one for Dissolve Media, but you can list off all the projects that you've worked on. You could order them in like what position you had. Um, you could, uh, most production companies, if you're credited in them, they will fill it out for you. So then that way, you know, they'll link your specific IMDb Pro, almost like linking you to your Instagram or Facebook, but they'll okay. link your profile to you. So that way then you, you're officially... You know, people know that you've officially worked on that film if you're credited. Obviously, you could credit yourself, um, but it's better to have that production company do it for you. But what happens is then you it's basically like your resume in the film industry. And then what's cool about it is then outside of just having your resume there and being able to network with other people using IMDb Pro is that IMDb Pro almost works like a social networking site as well where they rank they have a ranking system so the more people search you up the higher you rank okay and so it provides you with a number that you're ranked of like literally everybody that has an account IMDb um at pro and you know i think i got as low and, and it goes as high as like 8 million uh, and if not higher uh, i think w one day when i when i had it i got as low as like 200,000 something which you know compared what are those to numbers the pertaining million, to that that's out of out of you know let's say there's 10 million people that have imdb pro yeah i was the 200,000th oh. most searched okay. on imdb cool. um out of the 10 million and so eventually you want to get yourself to as close to number one as possible. And then, you know, that's kind of like a popularity type of thing. But mm -hmm. uh, then you could get recognized and people are searching you. And then if you are, you know, top 50,000, then maybe an agent sees you and then they respond to you and, and try to hook you up. And so having an IMDb Pro account is super helpful. That's literally the standard for film. It's just like having a LinkedIn, but for film specifically. Yeah. Um, which then second thing is go to, go to LinkedIn. Yeah, most yeah. most of these producers and directors uh, are on LinkedIn and they have a way to connect and for you to directly message them uh, on LinkedIn. It's a professional way to, to uh, network and, and meet people and kind of give them props for what they do and so on. I know I've met a lot of people on LinkedIn as well. So, and LinkedIn potentially will have emails too. From there, you go to film festivals, right? Like they said, now, obviously, it's a little bit more difficult with COVID. Um, but once COVID's kind of down a little bit and they start having impersonal film festival, impersonal, in-person film festivals, yeah. uh, those are going to be great uh, resources for you to meet other filmmakers as well. And it's exciting because like vaccines and, and after quarantine, like it's right around the corner. You know, we're about to get done with this and, and, and this is COVID has hit. The filmmaking industry is so fucking hard, and it, that's like sad to see, but it's that's how it is. Um, but it's right around the corner, you know. It is. Film festivals Patience. are going to open back up by the end of the year, hopefully, you know, next year. Yeah, um, but keep going. Yeah, so going to those film festivals, submitting your content, which means that you have to have content to submit. Mm -hmm. We're not here to talk about that. We're yeah. here to talk about what. And even these guys that have had a number one film literally just said go make something on your iphone every weekend mm -hmm. you know and we keep saying keep that but to hear that from these guys creating. is so cool yeah hashtag keep creating yeah um those are going to be your best resources to be able to connect with people you know facebook i think is another really good platform that's how i was able to connect with brad it's a little bit more professional than your instagram or twitters mm -hmm. um 
you know, I know that Reddit has film groups, but most of the people on Reddit aren't going to be your professionals. They're going to be some of those indie level people. So if you're trying to look for professionals specifically, Facebook is good. 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 Um, and then if after all of that, if you seem to still want to try to connect with somebody, you know, Instagram, Twitter can be good. One thing that I do want to point out is look at their previous posts and see if those people respond or like the comments that people have made because yeah. if they don't interact with their fans then that means that they're not going to interact with you yeah they're literally just huge posting people, and that's it a lot of these huge people are run by uh or their accounts are run uh by their managers and stuff anyways, exactly so so it's not going to be beneficial for you to say hey i'd like to connect with you and potentially buy you coffee yeah. if they're not going to view your shit yeah small um, steps small steps you know start small obviously you take all of those first and there's millions of people on imdb pro that you could reach out to and start making connections with mm -hmm. um and uh probably once dissolve media gets an imdb pro account that's going to be a great way for us to reach out and get some podcast guests but hopefully you get to a point where especially with our, our particular stuff uh people will start reaching out to us and be like hey we see that you guys are interviewing filmmakers wondering if you guys would want to have me on the show mm-hmm that's the, that's the goal. That's the point. Yeah. And, and I mean, the, as of now, for this podcast, we are reaching out to, I can't say we, I've not done a lot of that. I think yeah. that's a lot of you, Andrew, but um, he's reached out to uh, so many people and, and he has booked all of these interviews and yeah, we've had some awesome people, um, but that's reaching out. You know, we, we haven't had anybody come to us and say, hey, we want to be on this podcast, you know, because it's new and we're trying to make it consistent so that it can grow and, and, and that, but like we don't have a huge audience right now and and so it's yeah just reaching out to people networking connecting mm -hmm. eventually as we grow people will come back and listen to these episodes yeah but the the point is we're we're creating a central platform for people to get educated on growing your yourself as an independent filmmaker yeah. to that professional stage where you're getting hired yeah. by National Geographic or Netflix yeah. or Hulu or Disney and all the people that have responded to us and have been on this podcast have been people that, that absolutely want to be part of that education. Mm -hmm. And like, if we had say a ton of money to pay some huge, like fucking, I don't know, Ryan Reynolds to be on, um, on the podcast, like maybe I'm not going to say yes or no, but maybe we wouldn't have that same vibe that we have with this, you know, because the people that we get, uh, because we're we're a smaller smaller thing, and people just want to the people that are on the podcast just want to educate. Maybe we wouldn't have that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and and so I think that's important is to like that. This is kind of our niche, um, at least for this podcast we're producing is is education, uh, and and hitting those smaller indie filmmakers. So exactly, exactly. Um, do you have anything? I got I got over my I spiel. Do. I have a lot. I have a ton. Yeah, yeah. They said so much cool stuff and there's a lot of talk a lot to talk about but i kind of wanted to focus in on because that's kind of really caught my attention because i'm such a, a gearhead and i'm the cinematographer you know and that's my passion so uh they talked to i that's kind of why i asked that question too about like what more budget gear would you recommend and stuff so i i still work a lot with and and brad said he does too is that like macgyvering shit you know and i think that's really important doing that in in every production is is super important he said he searched through the trash cans on one of his productions to find something that would work and and I think that's super important and so I kind of wanted to talk about some of the uh, more low budget gear that will still give you a, a good 
production value because as much as it is about having a good story, having a good cast, that's honestly like a larger part of it than than it seems is to have that production value. And so there's so much good consumer gear that is coming out that that is that was unthinkable uh, just a couple years ago, you know. And so the Blackmagic uh, cinema cameras are insane. Like I said, they can fit in with Alexas and Reds. Um, and the Blackmagic 4K is 1200. Uh, you can find it used for like 900. Uh, I, th- I saw on eBay one time. And like I said before, I have I spent like a hundred dollars and I got uh, dozens of um, black fabrics and and sheer fabrics and white and other colors uh, to diffuse light, to bounce light, to block light. Uh, you don't need a five hundred dollar ultra bounce if you can't afford it. I guess I could I should kind of start with now that's reminding me is that like you can wait for all of this equipment, all of this bigger budget equipment uh, when you have the uh, rental budget for it on a bigger production, but as as important as it is to hashtag just keep creating with what you have, if you're super passionate and especially if you're a cinematographer, um, to build up your own uh, gear arsenal is important. You know, he Brad said that he brought a lot of his personal equipment to I think it was uh, California Christmas and a few mm-hmm. other productions, but. Yeah, and like so, the Blackmagic cameras are super cheap, um, and the Titan tubes that he was talking about, th- those can get kind of expensive, but a ton of brands have uh, those like LED tube lights. And I think if you are looking for your very first um, light, I think LED is the way to go. And I think those Titan tubes uh, or something similar is, is a really good way to go. You know, Came TV, which is an awesome brand um, that is, makes super low budget stuff that is just really close to the quality of um of larger but larger budget stuff anyways yeah so like those led tubes that you can uh change to different not only different color temperatures but different colors are rgb i think those are great because they're they're an okay key light for interviews you know especially if you're just getting started um they're great for lighting up uh stuff like barns and uh industrial hallways and uh, even when you build up a um, much larger and and uh, more expensive lighting kit they'll still be great for hair lights and for interviews and stuff like that so uh, i think investing in some of those to begin with is a great way to go because uh, you'll never lose them you know mm-hmm. um and or not that you'll never lose them but that you'll never have to get rid of them because they'll always be useful uh, did you have any comments um I don't know as much about gear as Jasper over here. I did notice that uh, they talked about lighting mm-hmm. specifically. Like we we mentioned some camera stuff, but like Brad just went on and on and on about lighting and the importance of lighting. Which was so cool to see. And I even asked a specific question about that too. Yeah. And I mean, the, the thing is like they had so many different types of lights they also did a lot of natural lighting too, especially in you know the, those scenes when they were talking about the motorcycle and riding at night. They just used the lights that were already there yeah. outdoor. Like they didn't bring any extra with Use them. Use natural light to your advantage. Like when you're talking about filmmaking uh, in, in very cinematic lighting, most of the time, unless it's like a, a specific feel, if it's like in a basement or if it's a horror scene, whatever, you're going to want more soft lighting and natural light provides 
so much softness, you know, in overcast day. Um, you know, if it's if it's if it's an overcast day, go fucking shoot something. You know, uh, if you're in a smaller uh, like bedroom, you know, put somebody up against a window. One of the best like cinematography real shots you can have uh, is like somebody up against a window with some shears, uh, you know, and maybe mm -hmm. a backlight, and that's so freaking easy to do. But I mean, the other thing is to mention too is it tends to create a, a nice softer feel n more natural light if you're able to shoot either right after the sun comes up or right before it goes down mm -hmm. uh tends to not work as well during the middle of the day the light is just way too harsh um and so i mean that's at least what i've been taught you're the professional here <laughs> are is that correct you know what i found is that like so many people hate broad daylight and all of that um, and golden hour is absolutely the way to go if you are a guerrilla filmmaking and you don't have the equipment or the time um, just go shoot something at golden hour but with broad daylight you know if you just put a it, it, you always have to turn um, the sun you have to turn the camera into the sun you know and, and backlight somebody um, because then at least um, with just that you'll have a softer light on their face because it won't be harsh it'll it'll outline uh, their entire head and the shoulders and stuff and that'll be super cool and you'll get uh, lines in the background along trees and mountaintops and whatever but that um, only works if the sun's relatively down if it's like literally right above you that has a work yeah. as well and even if it's literally right above you take one of those two dollar sheets of fabric of a kind of sheer fabric and string it between so okay so what i did that one of my favorite pieces of equipment that i've made uh for like 10 bucks is some pvc piping and i put it into a four or i i, I got the piping uh in the elbows and stuff to make a four by six frame and then i sewed a uh, sheer fabric into a tube shape that was uh, four feet long and, and fit right over it um, so that way I can just slide uh, yeah I can just slide it on um, and then I have a an entire sun diffuser that's four feet by six feet which would cost you hundreds of dollars if you were, get, were to get something professional but it works just the same pop that above your talent during the the straight down sun and add a bounce if you can uh, a bounce into their face as a key light and you're good to go See, solutions already. Yeah. All those damn assholes that are telling you not to light during the middle of the day can go fuck themselves right in the ass. <laughs> I actually love broad daylight, honestly. <laughs> so many people say, and that's kind of what I was going on before, so many people say they hate it. I love it because all you have to do is diffuse it, it's, bounce it's it, easier. and you're good to go. I feel like it's easier to, to manipulate broad daylight than try to overlight something when it's yeah. a little darker. And, and yeah, and one of the best things you can have is a super, super bright light so that you can put it farther away and it looks more natural and stuff. But the sun is your super bright light that is far away and looks super natural. Uh, I don't know about you, but light. I would rather use moonlight than sunlight. It's so much brighter. Okay, well, moonlight, you're going to have to jack your ISO up to 56,000. Okay. Yeah, well, I like a little bit of grain and noise in my image. <laughs> Okay, well, I'll make sure to put tons of grain and noise and make it look disgusting for you when we shoot tomorrow. Um, so you're just going to make it look like your face? After that, I'm not going to light anything. <laughs> I'm just going to I'm just gonna shoot Except it and be like, you know doobie. what? We're going natural, and it's going to look like shit, and you're going to I wonder how far off, and I'm going to say it's because you, right here, right now, disrespected me. 
I wonder how far into this podcast Sean and Brad will actually listen if they're going to listen to us talk too or if they're just going to listen to themselves talk and like, uh, I yeah. guess that's all right. Okay, Sean, Brad, if you've gotten to this point, I want you to message me right now. I want you to say, hey, we just got to this point in the podcast. Okay, that's that's it. Yeah, that way we do. know please. that you have listened to it to this point. Uh, even if you don't have any comments on it, I just want to say like, Hey, maybe maybe say a joke, maybe a dad joke. I don't know. Maybe a pickup line. I don't know. Say something funny. Say something this, sexy this, to this us. This is how networking works, there, Sean uh, and Brad. Is uh, I want to get to know you guys a little bit better. So tell me something about yourself. Yeah. If you've absolutely. gotten to this point, you should just message us right now. <laughs> yeah. So what else you got for me? Uh, another thing I wanted to talk about. They talked about vintage glass. Um, no and, idea what that is. So. <laughs> I could get so technical. Like I talk for an We're hour. already at what, like three hours long? For this oh, period. probably. Um, vintage glass will be your best friend. You know, like Canon FDs is one of the easiest ways to go and they're super cheap and they're super adaptable. When you get into the technicalities, um, you've got the, the way different lens mounts uh, fit on cameras. You have different flange distances which is the distance between the back element of the lens and the sensor itself. Um, and since Canon has always had a very large flange, di flange distance compared to other brand manufacturers, um, their lenses have always been super adaptable. So you can adapt uh, a Canon lens to literally almost any other camera. Um, and so even with their FD mount lenses, which came out uh, in the later half of the 1900s, the, the thing too is that when like color film really started to take hold and then digital film you have all of these lenses that were made not only made to last um and so even if you get them used on ebay they're if you make sure that like the pictures look good that they're going to be of great quality but also that a lot like so many of the modern lenses that are twenty thousand dollars you know the the um what is it the kawa and the um just tons of other uh super modern super expensive lenses are built off of these vintage lenses because they're so good the best lens that i have in my arsenal is a canon fd 85 millimeter 1.8 it is the sharp. I've had Sigma glass. I've had. I've, I've tested a lot of different brands. How much brands. did that lens cost you? That one was two hundred, which is literally the most expensive Canon FD that I have. And with lenses, um, that is one of the cheapest lenses you can get. But the thing is, is not, not only is it the sharpest lens that I have, which, again, I don't really care about sharpness because as a filmmaker, you want that halation, you want that softness, you want to be able to um, blend kind of those skin tones so you don't see every single pore. Uh, it also offers that vintage uh, kind of flare when you um, push hard lights into it. Uh, you get that halation around the highlights. Um, and so uh, one of the most renowned uh, cinematography lenses that are used on huge budgets are K35s, which are completely not only completely built off of uh, the Canon FDs, but also sometimes use like the exact uh, same elements, especially the older uh, ones use some of the same elements that the uh, Canon FDs have. And so if you go with vintage lenses, um, if you go with a, a good line, you can get lenses that are absolutely of high budget cinema quality, you know, and, and pair that with a Blackmagic 4K or a GH5 or something. And, and you've got yourself a real, really good setup for less than $2,000. Also, some of the best photos that I've got have been from this like $30 Voigtlander um, yellow tinted like five pound big old ugly lens and and that's because of the the character that it draws 
and and by character I mean uh, the character of a lens is is um, like kind of how soft it is you know the the chromatic aberration which is not always a bad thing that's that's such a huge thing that people okay so uh, <laughs> our SD card just filled up on a recorder so that tells us how long we've been going probably three or four hours now um, but I was just kind of wrapping up on what I wanted to say anyways is that like were you were you wrapping up no I could go for hours but <laughs> just just really like it, it's important to do with what you have you know and if this is absolutely your passion build up on your own personal arsenal of equipment and 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 get the uh, budget equipment that is just at the right bang for buck that you can get, you know? And so it's taken me years of serving, which like I said, is, is honestly really great money to, to be able to build up the equipment that I have, you know? And, and yes, like we rent from a, a rental house if, if we need to for uh, larger productions, but I still use the original Blackmagic cinema camera that I got for $400. I, I, I use every single um, production. I use those cheap fabrics that I got from like Joann's or whatever. And those vintage lenses that are like $50 each. And it's like, it, you can invest in such good equipment for really not that much money. And, and so I think that's my final point too. Andrew, did you have anything to wrap this up? No, I, I fantastic episode, mm -hmm. lots of amazing knowledge. And, you know, like I said, we're definitely going to have Sean and Brad back. Mm -hmm. Hopefully have Lauren and Josh for those of you who are wanting to specifically learn from professional actors uh, in the industry. I'm also hoping to have, uh, I believe they said the name was Noel. Um, their producer friend that they know. I would love to have a producer on here specifically. I don't think we've had a producer on here. Uh, I don't know how many people are, are listening to this or wanting to get into produ producing specifically. It'd be nice to, to figure out how to get there because I have absolutely no idea how to become a producer. Mm -hmm. But also for those of you who are script writers or directors, like how to connect with producers, like what producers look for in talent um, and scripts and stuff like that. It's gonna. I think that would be super helpful to have on, on the podcast as well. I think that'd be helpful for people to directly hear from producers and what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, stay tuned for all of that. This honestly might be the next like whole bunch of interviews in a row are just going to be from this specific film of, of people. Gosh, because we can go on and on about it. And, <laughs> yeah. and I know that we both had a great time talking to these just... guys. And I hope you guys had a great time listening to this, even though it's <laughs> probably five hours at this point. <laughs> but man, like... There's just, there's so much good information and it's, it's great to learn about, uh, everybody's background and productions that they've done. But again, what we want to do is educate you guys on how to get started, what to do, how to go from filming on your iPhone to filming with a red, you know? So to wrap things up, I just, I hope everybody has, has learned a lot from this and I hope, I hope you all have a great weekend as this will air on Friday, Friday night. night. So assuming that they listen on Friday night, that's fair. Yeah, this could be, they could be listening to this on Wednesday. Well then have a great or, week. Or have a great Monday. week. Have a great weekend. I don't fucking care. Have a great day. Have a great day. Life. Great night. And obviously have connect with us, connect with the guest on our podcast. Always. Go yeah. watch a California Christmas. Mm -hmm. And lastly, stay classy. San Diego.